VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, no Patty today. Tim Powers in for Patty. He will be back tomorrow. Glad to be here with you for one more day and pleased to be working with uh, Sarah Strickland as we go through this three-hour journey together. And we've got lots to talk about, lots going on in Newfoundland and Labrador, lots going on across the country, as you've heard in our newscasts. I don't know where I'm going to go with my rant or ramble this morning. Let me start, first of all, with a, a couple of news items Brian mentioned, and then we'll weave and bob in different directions. Uh, thinking, too, of uh, Nicole Kiley, the uh, deputy mayor of Mount Pearl, the um, worker with Minister Dempster, key worker with Minister Dempster at the Minister of Indigenous and Labrador Affairs. She, as you heard on our news, was involved in a... Uh, bizarre, hard, terrible car accident last week when she was shopping at Chopper's Drug Mart. Um, she was part of um, uh, the collateral damage of the human variety, which is very serious, as the car crashed, uh, a SUV crashed through La Marchin Road, Chopper's Drug Mart, and she was struck by it and trapped underneath. And thankfully, the St. John's Fire Department was there to rescue her. Um, you heard, as Brian reported, the story of the minister receiving the call from Miss Kylie's sister, uh, how hard for all involved to, to make the call, to have the call, and of course, most importantly, Miss Kylie, who uh, hopefully is recovering as best she can, and, and our thoughts are, are, are with her, um, as they would be with anybody who went through something so horrific, and uh, we hope she recovers well. We're thinking of the family. We wish her the best. We wish her friends and family the best. This is tough. Um, a young person... Uh, to suffer a, a very hard, terrible injury like this at this time is uh, is a tough thing. So to you, uh, to the Kylie family, to Minister Dempster, to uh, everybody connected, uh, we're thinking of you and uh, our thoughts and prayers are with Miss Kylie for a, for a speedy recovery. That That's a tough one. Um, but this this is less tough, and this is more obvious. Uh, and I got to say, I, I don't know how I segue from it, so I'm just going to go to it. I... I'm looking at the VOCM news site right now, and uh, there's the picture of the 2,500 bags of garbage that were picked up around the Outer Ring Road. And you heard Minister Davison saying, you know, this is better than it was before, and, and, and that's good. I don't dispute that. But how is it? Can I garbage shame? Is that allowed? I'm going to garbage shame for a minute. How is it in this day and age that we still have 2,500 bags of garbage picked up in a cleanup around the Outer Ring Road. I mean, I know we've moved a long way from when I was a kid in the 80s and uh, when you saw garbage strewn all across the province and if you were driving down the TCH, you just threw your can of Pepsi out on the side and thought nothing of it, uh, which was dumb and stupid, and I'm guilty of being those things. Uh, but how do we still have this happening? How do we have 2,500 garbage bags around the Outer Ring Road? I get a bit. I get things blow off. But as the minister said, maybe we got to do a better job of securing garbage and tightening things up and, and doing all those things. But it's still a bit embarrassing. I mean, I don't know what the average of other cities is. But as we sell Newfoundland and Labrador to the market and the Outer Ring Road, uh, the world market, and the Outer Ring Road is a key um, highway, getting to and through the city and uh, getting to the rest of the province. I mean, I think we got to do a little bit better, people. 2,500 bags of garbage. Look, compliments. I know there are lots of 
vigilant people out there. I see them when I'm home and going around Kitty Vitty Lake uh, or running up uh, the different trails who are picking up garbage. I know there's garbage ba- there's garbage uh, bins everywhere now, and, that, and that's all good. But can we just be a little bit more disciplined? It's an awful picture. Look at it. Go to our website. It looks like uh, uh, yeah, what George Street probably looks like on a Friday night after they've cleaned up all the garbage. Um, but they clean it up down there. Anyway, you get the point. Clean up your garbage. Will you tie it down? We still got to do better with all of that. Speaking of doing better, there is um, a story here in Ontario which connects with me that I want to raise here. And it's about abuse in sport. And the Ontario Youth, the Ontario Soccer Association Federation has now equipped or will be equipping its youth referees with body cams so that this intention is to hope uh, that there will be limited abuse by parents and, and coaches in games. I, that <laughs> That's a pretty bold move. Um, I hope it works. The Ontario Soccer Federation has lots of data to say that abuse had been up and this is a measure that could counter it. Again, how in this day and age, I get things get competitive. I was at a youth soccer game last night. It was awesome. And thankfully, everybody was well-behaved. I get people lose the plot. I've lost the plot on the playing field before as a player, and that wasn't right. And I've said things to referees that weren't right. But, you know, I don't get in this day and age how we're still misbehaving as parents and coaches when it comes to youth sports. I don't know if the same problem exists in Newfoundland and Labrador. I hope that it doesn't. I'm not saying put a cork in your passion. I'm not saying don't cheer hard, but don't be picking on young people uh, who are refereeing, who are giving back to the game, because as they're discovering in soccer in Ontario and they're discovering in other sports here, and I believe it is true at home, and we've seen the um, green armband program for Newfoundland and Labrador hockey at home, uh, which is, again, meant to demonstrate that there's a youth official refereeing and encourage people to demonstrate respect. Can we get better at that? You can still cheer. But we all don't need to morph into bleacher creatures and goons as sport is going forward. There is so much joy, and sport is so important now. And referees, yes, I've matured, I'm saying this, are integral to all of that. You, know, get, get, you can chastise them for fun, but... Don't be deliberate. Don't be mean. Don't threaten them. In Ontario, they had a case where a referee, a teenage referee, was accosted in a parking lot. I mean, what kind of ne'er-do-well, great word, ne'er-do-well does something like that? I don't know. Anyway, that, that's, I'm still wound up about that. We're trying to track down someone from the Newfoundland Soccer Association to see what their take on this and what it, what is happening in Newfoundland and Labrador around all of this. Just in the sports theme for a minute, because uh, I know we got a lot of uh, sports fans who listen to this program. Of course, Growlers, big game six tonight. they got to win it against the Everblades. Hopefully they do. Got to see them play earlier this winter, and it was an awesome uh, night. They were on fire. Hopefully they do. They're the only team. This is my ritualistic morning dig to Ben Murphy and the Toronto Maple Leafs organization that knows how to win. So hopefully they continue their winning ways. And speaking of hockey, who would have thought when we were growing up, and I mean 20, 30 years ago, that you would have, 30 years ago, maybe a bit more, uh, you would have a team called the Florida Panthers playing a team called the Las Vegas Golden Knights in the Stanley Cup Final. I think it's great. It's taking hockey to new markets. You're getting to see some fine players, you know, Matthew 
to Chuck and Sergey Bobrovsky on the uh, on the Panthers and Jack Eichel and Mark Stone and all of their uh, Petrangelo on the uh, on the Golden Knights. It's awesome. It's awesome. Uh, you got thoughts on that though? Are you going to watch? Because um, some of the hockey this year has been fantastic. The final sports note I'll make. Uh, Shout out Bouquet. I saw his son tweeted this yesterday to Terry Ryan Sr., who's getting his jersey hung in the rafters in Grand Falls during Salmon Fest. Of course, um, uh, Sr., as they call him, a big hockey star, came out of Grand Falls area, played in the WHA, played for St. Mike's, played in Hamilton. Um, character to this day, if you listen to any of the, the sports podcasts, the hockey podcasts, he's a bit of a revered figure there, great baseball player. I remember him most as a substitute teacher. We used to love when Mr. Ryan came to our classes. He'd bring his Bobby Hull hockey stick. He brought as much energy as he had on his playing fields to the classroom. He was always fun to have, and congratulations to him and the whole family on that achievement. It's a great achievement. Now let's get into some of the more substantive issues of the day you may want to talk about. Um, there was the Alberta election. You heard about that this morning on uh, on our newscast. Of course, the UCP hung on. We had a caller yesterday who figured that they would. They won 49 seats, the NDP 38 of the 87 seats available in Labrador. Labrador, my goodness, uh, in Alberta. Um, they it was 52-44 in terms of the vote split, so we weren't too bad on the abacus side. Popular vote number, that is. Lots of suggestions to say this is going to have ramifications nationally. Um, While well, Danielle Smith did hold on, and congratulations to her, it wasn't obvious that that was going to happen. What does it look like nationally? You have a perspective on that. How might that change the oil dynamic, oil and gas dynamic in the country? One of the things she said last night is she's going to fight hard to represent Alberta's interest on the national stage. And some of those interests, at least as it relates to extending oil and gas development, Newfoundland and Labrador shares. Good or bad for Newfoundland and Labrador? Good or bad for the country? you got to take on that. Give us a call. Speaking of energy, NL Energy is having a significant conference today. It's main annual conference uh, in St. John's. You heard Brian Callahan, our colleague, talking to Ben this morning about it, uh, how it's jam-packed down there. I read something, 600 delegates, 50 companies, hydrogen is on the agenda. Mr. Parsons gave a keynote this morning updating on uh, some of the projects that Newfoundland and Labrador is pursuing, including the uh, energy developments in the Stephenville area. I've reached out to Minister Parsons. We're, I know he's busy. If we can get him on today, we will try and get him on to, to get a bit of an update. But uh, that um, for some, that is good news. For others, they won't be so happy that there's still so much enthusiasm. There are many who would like. Um, not as many in Newfoundland and Labrador who speak out, but many who think would see a rapid transition from uh, from oil and gas. But again, focus of this is is hydrogen. You got thoughts on that? Look, I, I think we have to be in the game on energy, whether it be the traditional energy project pro, um, products, oil and gas, because there still is a time. There still is transition. This still has to be done. We know the story of how we have less emitting GHGs from our oil, though the, some will contest that. That is, uh, that is extracted offshore. But Newfoundland and Labrador, so much of our economy is here. We do need to transition. Nobody is running away from all of that. Hydrogen, there's lots of contention on the West Coast, too. Certainly there's NIMBY groups out there, not in my backyard, who are saying 
Uh, let's not move forward with all of this. I know this is a loaded topic, and I want to get your views on all of this today. I, I think we embrace it as best we can. We pursue the opportunities that are there. We be conscious of our environmental commitments, but recognize that you just don't stop whole and cold on day one, that that is not good for anybody, but we do need to get to where the future is going. But we can use oil and gas and hydrogen to do that. But you want to, you got a different take, you support that take. I'm all for hearing about it. Also, what are we hearing about today? Well, we are hearing about those wildfires still in, uh, in Nova Scotia. And did you know, saw this this morning, there are over 200 wildfires burning in Canada. So, I mean, this links nicely to the last topic because there will be people, I'm sure Bruno's queuing up somewhere, whether you like him or not, he has a perspective on climate change and what's happening here and how fires and hurricanes and derechos and all the other climatic forces that we see have uh, played a role in, in changing our economy. But in Halifax, my goodness, those pictures... Are, uh, are overwhelming. I know we're in radio, and I'm not very good at painting pictures, but if you want to sneak off for a moment, look at some of the videos and, and still photos, you still have those things, that have come out around uh, the, uh, the fires in Nova Scotia. They're, 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 they're frightening, and they must be frightening if you're in communities like Tantallon or Hammond's Plains, which aren't too far outside the city of Halifax. I have a business partner, lots of friends who are from the Halifax area. They're all very concerned. Uh, They're very supportive and thankful of Newfoundland. And um, you heard Premier Houston in the newscast thank Premier Fury for sending over the water bombers and the crews that we've sent over. Uh, Something to be proud of as a, a citizen of Newfoundland and Labrador, how we always come to help others. We've been doing the same thing, I believe, in Alberta, and we've done it before, and people have helped us. That's all good. But these threats are real, uh, and uh, we will be talking, I believe, to our program director, our Stingray program director, to get an update on all of this. So much to talk about today. I think we're getting Perry Chafe on to talk about his new book. We've got Chris Aylward on, the uh, head of Peace Act, to talk about a uh, strike in a Callowit and uh, the use of replacement workers and the concern that he and others have. We have got uh, colleagues on to talk about Melanoma Awareness Month, and we've got you and so many more calls that we want to take today. And just a reminder, if you want to get me, you can get me at Powers Tim on Twitter or on uh, the old school pigeon carrying email, open line at VOCM.com, and I will be happy to talk to you. Wow, I hit the mark perfectly. That's rare. Time for our first break here on VOCM's Open Line. Jump the gun there. Well, apparently you guys got a little preview of me and Sarah talking there. Our mics were still open. That happens sometimes. I'm glad. I'm glad that I had offered self-restraint. Sometimes I say bad words. I apologize. There were Thankfully, I didn't have to apologize. There were none then, but we'll fix that. Um, and thank you to that astute listener who pointed it out. Now, somebody who is equally astute and uh, is always up on things, and maybe maybe my preamble just didn't hit because he wants to talk about something else, and that's fine, too. Dave Callahan, how are you, buddy? You want to talk about Marine Atlantic, do you? You there, Dave? Whoop, we got Dave, Sarah? We don't have Dave yet, or we're working. Okay, hang on there. There you go. It's that kind of day. That's all right. We'll get through it. You tell me when you're there, Dave. 
Davis. How about that? Tom is on there. Tom, are you there? Tom? <laughs> Excuse me. Tom, you there? There we go. We got it. We're sailing smoothly. Look, a little couple of bumps in the road. That happens. We'll get through it all. Tom, how are you? Dodging and weaving like you, buddy. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we all got to do that. What's on your mind today? Well, I quickly want to touch on Nicole Kylie, an incredible individual. Sure. And, and I didn't realize till the news this morning that she was the lady who was trapped under that car. And our thoughts and prayers go out to her for a complete recovery. Yes, uh, that's it's a sad story. I mean, how, how random is that? I mean, it just says, you know, and I don't want to be too um, biblical in all of this, Tom, but boy, you, you never know. You just never, never know. And I'm sure the Kylie family never thought when Nicole went to Shoppers Drug Mart, anything like that was going to happen, nor did she. But as you say, thoughts and prayers are with her. Yeah. I'm calling today uh, to voice our frustration publicly with... Um, the, the glacial speed, the slow speed that our bureaucracy moves, but in particular, um, Newfoundland Labrador English School District and the Department of Education in their implementation of the Kids and No uh, Child Body Safety Program. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some background on that that was developed by the Center for Child Protection. And um, to actually put it in every K-9 classroom in the province would cost less than $25,000. It's interactive, so it's not teacher-heavy. And it, it basically gives children the tools to increase their personal safety and reduce the risk of being victimized online and offline. And um, it's in every other province and territory in this country. It's been Nova Scotia province-wide, every classroom since 2009, New Brunswick since 2014. Mm -hmm. In actual fact, in Ontario, your province, where your mm -hmm. little guy goes to school, uh, all the teachers actually had to do the next level, which was uh, child abuse prevention from the same center. And they had, before the kids started school in September of 2022, they actually had to do an online program to, to help prevent child abuse. So um, many people in the provinces read my wife, Edmore Davis's book, White Picket Monsters, which mm -hmm. outlines the kind of life that some children in our province and, and way too many children in our province live when they go home, and, you know, sexual, physical, emotional, psychological abuse. And that's been proven to, to scar, you know, children, you know, forever. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and, and results in increased rates of suicide, criminal behavior, mental and physical diseases, addictions, and substance abuses. So, so the, you know, this is, you know, these are just obvious facts, you know, that everybody knows. And, and my wife started this process five years ago pushing for a body education program in our schools since 2018, five years ago. And at the time, she found that NLESD was actually looking at this program, at the Kids in No program, all the way back then. And, and she wanted to help get it in the schools. So she assembled a team, including the police chief, other retired and active police officers who deal in that area of child abuse and child protection, and two pediatricians and myself, and we went and we gave presentations to the leaders of this province, political, um, as well as administrative management, you know, everybody from the NLTA to uh, NLESD, Department of Education, and other, other groups and committees, anybody who would sit, sit down with us and listen. And my wife would tell her story, which is super powerful. A lot of times, a lot of men in the room, you know, a lot of men in the room, and, and I watched her pour her heart out and, 
and there were tears in the room, there would be people who would actually disclose in the room of experiences that they had, either to themselves or as teachers. And every time we left that room, you know, we had like, we were greenlit all the way. Mm-hmm. And, and here we are five years later, fourth minister of education. We're going on our second, now apparently we just found out, third uh, deputy minister. Many have retired, including the head of NLTA, including the CEO of NLESD. Many administrators and teachers have retired, and the program's not in place. And our, and these children are going home like my wife did. She dreaded long weekends. She dreaded the weekends. She dreaded Christmas. She dreaded Easter. And most of all, she dreaded summer holidays. But the people that are in power, they don't dread those times. No. Even though, most likely, in their lives, they, I mean, they've seen it firsthand. And I just can't wrap my head around how this program, five years later, is not in schools. And, you know, you know there's, again, everybody we talk to, yeah, let's get, you know, we're, we're forehead. Let's, 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 you know, we're, we're going to make this happen. And, and, you know, but during that time period, during that same time period, the NLASD had the resources and the time and the money to fight Carter Churchill and his family. It's yep. been a fortune. And what does that say? Why, why did they do that? Well, you know, they didn't want a precedent. They wanted to protect reputations. Well, I say shame on them. Everybody who could have and should have been greenlighting and pushing this through, um, shame on them. And that's their leg. That is your legacy, everyone. And, and that goes right. You know, it's not just as simple as, as the politicians. Everyone's to blame the politicians. There's a lot of people who have this on their hands, on their consciences. So I call on everybody who has any power from the bottom all the way up to call on your, whoever the next level up to you is. Let's get this done for September, not lip service. Uh, let's get it in every K-9 to classroom. We can do this. Our children deserve it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we, have a, we started a website called bodysafetynl.com. And you go in there, it's got all the information, it's got the timeline. It also has a really easy way to go all the way to the bottom. You could send an email easily to, uh, with a form letter uh, to your MHA, to the Premier, to the Minister of Education. But again, it's really easy to blame the politicians. There's a lot of people get paid every day to protect our children, to do what's best for them. And I call all of them to do what's right. And I hope uh, Newfoundland and Labrador will come together and get this program in the schools in September of this year. I'll, I'll leave it there, Tom. I would echo everything you say. I, I just, again, I know from my experience with sports coaching and that landscape has all changed dramatically, as it should for the better, that courses like this, um, awareness courses for adults, uh, as you talked about here in Ontario, for teachers are provided for coaches and for other players about understanding and recognizing and respecting. And, in fact, it's called the Respect Course by Sheldon Kennedy, as you know, and there, there are other versions of that diversity and equity courses. Anyway, I'll leave it there because you've said it perfectly. I don't want to step on your message. Uh, Thanks, Tom, for your call. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Um, Important message by Tom. If you have a perspective, give us a call now. We do have Dave Callahan on the line. A few technical glitches, but we're working through them. Dave, are you there? How are you? I I am good, buddy. How are you? Not bad at all. We're here. (laughs) We're we're here. We got it together. All good. That happens. (laughs) I, I, as I was, uh, I started to say uh, uh, there were a few things in your preamble this morning that could spout a, a definite uh, conversation about. But one that I 
I honed in on, and it, it just repetitively gets under my skin when you hear of another tax increase coming on our provincial ferry system. Yeah. And then, of course, that kind of brings you to a point where you kind of get a chance to complain, I guess, about things that were done years ago, some of the foolish things that happened as a result at the hands of a few politicians that affect every one of our lives from that point and beyond. We allowed, basically, the federal government out of its obligation to us. We had, according to Term 32 uh, of the Terms of Union, Canada was obligated to provide a federally supported ferry service between North Sydney and Port of Basque. And it was supposed to be to give us some kind of safeguard against higher cost of living, raises in pricing, and this type of thing. And it was specifically framed basically along the idea that the dominant transportation mode of the day was by rail. So the 100-mile crossing, 90-mile crossing in the Cabot Strait, was supposed to be rated as an all-rail movement. The additional handling and operational costs of the ferry were supposed to be absorbed by the government of Canada through the crown-owned Canadian corporation, National CN National Railway. Mm-hmm. So all that being said and all that being true, Newfoundland had its own railway before it became a part of Canada. And unfortunately, the gauge of the tracks was different than was used for the trains that operated from North Sydney right across, I guess, this country. So it meant issues with trying to receive anything by rail. Now, this is on day one. This is when they first signed this agreement. This was the reality. So rail didn't really work. It would make it to Port of Basque and could not be loaded aboard the ferry and this type of thing, so it would have to be broken down and much higher cost to, you know, to handling goods sent out or received in. So then... Rather than do the right thing, which would have been to demand, okay, we're now a part of Canada, maybe you got to look at widening out the gauge of our tracks, of our system in Canada, so that our trains are compatible. They operated for years until it became an obvious detriment to doing so and a great expense to not only CN, I guess, but the Canadian government. Mm-hmm. And there was this elusive deal struck where they would give $800 million to the province in this roads for rails agreement. Deal in 88, yeah, I remember that. And it was an absolutely asinine agreement, and I think the government of the day was uh, the Peckford government. It was Peckford and Mulroney, yep, if I remember correctly. Yep, and uh, let's just say that... uh, it was a wrong that should be righted. And what I'm what I'm saying is this. The agreement didn't work for us from day one. So when they signed Term 32 of the Terms of Union, uh, I'd say the people that were there that were basically looking at this agreement and, and, and the forward moving the future from this agreement, well, those same people probably would have needed instructions on how to open peanuts. <laughs> And the amount of foresight that was actually you know, put forward and, and, and the amount of visionary thought was not a great amount because when history 
proves that that was not working, they decided to axe our railroad, which also at the same time let the federal government out of its obligations to provide an affordable ferry link to the rest of Canada. Dave, I got to give you a, give you a one minute, but I would just add uh, you can have it after I say this for thirty seconds. If I remember that correctly, too, it yep. was the cash grab, right? The appeal was the cash grab because yes. the, the the history was written. Uh, I mean, it was the the writing was on the wall that Newfoundland was not going to keep its rail service, and the idea was to get as much cash as you could as compensation. And so I take your point. Anyway, I got to give you about a minute, buddy, to sum up there. Well, the actual cash grab did not work for us. Obviously, where we find ourselves now is with an overpriced connection to the mainland that's not only bad for trade, it's bad for tourism, it's bad for just about everything. We've got seven federal MPs that you never hear anything out of. If they want to make this right, if Canada wants to make this right, then you've got to include us as part of Canada. I don't think a fixed link is going to work. I think the longest one in the world is like 57 kilometers or something like that. Yeah, it won't Maybe work we can't do that. Yeah. But we could probably have a much better ferry system than we have, and it should not be something that's so invasive on the ability to go to Newfoundland for everything from a load of, load of uh, produce to uh, a bus load of tourists. All right. Leave it there. Uh, thanks for the call, Dave. Always good to talk to you, and uh, certainly happy to talk more Marine Atlantic. Thanks, my friend, for hanging on. Thank you, Tim, very much, and thanks for the opportunity. Have a great one. Okay, take care. All right, so we got a lot on the go this morning. We're going to talk snakes next when we come back here on VOCM's Open Line. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Oh, my, it's time to talk about the snakes. Oh, I am not a big fan of snakes. As I said to you yesterday, my son is trying to get me past that fear. He holds those little garter snakes in front of my face. And now our next guest, she's just taunting me. She set up a Facebook of Newfoundland's, for Newfoundland snake sightings and garter snakes. Andrea, I'm going to get your name wrong, Giggeroff. Is that right from Mount A? and uh, Laura? <laughs> It's a Giggeroff. Jigger off. Well, I might. I, I, I will not make a joke about a bad word I might put in front of all of that because I do not like those snakes. Anyway, and you as somebody like I coach rugby at Mount A, you're tor- you're torturing me, Andrea. You're torturing me. I'm sorry. It's it's okay. I'll get. I feel like as long as it's not snakes on a plane. I mean that's a terrible movie, but your Facebook looks better. So what made you do this? This is. I mean, it, teasing aside, it's 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 awesome. It's a great idea. Yeah, so um, these snakes are are uh, really unique. It's a really unique kind of population on Newfoundland. They're the only um, potentially invasive population of garter snakes in the world. Um, so that makes it like a really cool opportunity to kind of research like how they got there, how their behavior differs from um, mainland snakes, uh, and uh, and just what they're doing on the island. Yeah, so th- I saw now, I, my understanding is that a lot of these snakes come over, you know, in hay bales and other things when goods are shipped mm-hmm. across. Is that how they're getting across? Yeah, that's one of the uh, things that I've been hearing a lot is that um, 
that's what yeah one of the sort of likely routes that they're using to get to the island is is over on hay bales and other agricultural material um there's also people have suggested that they might be like pets that people released possibly um we haven't really gotten to the bottom of it yet so that's hopefully one of the things that my research is going to uncover is is it one of those is it both are there multiple uh events that cause them to get released on the island at different times different places um yeah, so that's that's kind of one of the things I'm hoping to find out. And how do they survive? Um, I mean, they survive here in Ontario in the weather. I mean, we get more more intense winters here. But how do these garter snakes survive during the winter? Asking for a friend, Andrea. Asking for a friend. To see if we can end the invasion. Yeah, so um, they hibernate in the winter. They will kind of go to like okay. a in a crevice where they can kind of get a little bit below the frost line and then they'll just they'll overwinter. Um, and for a long time, we kind of thought that they wouldn't be able to do that on Newfoundland because it, it got too cold for too long. But um, people have been telling me that they've been seeing babies. So it seems really like that they are able to survive the winters and they actually are able to reproduce on the island too, which is not what you want to hear. I'm no, <laughs> no. Okay. Look, you can redeem yourself and tell me this. Are they going to get to St. John's to my mother's house? Because, you know, I, I don't want to not go out in the garden. She's got a great garden. Are they going to make it to town? Uh, uh, oh, Andrea, you're not helpful. Come on, tell me. <laughs> there was a report of one in Southlands in 2015. So oh! that's all I know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to alarm you, but it is possible. And how's the take up on the Facebook page? Um, it's been going really well. I'm amazed at how like friendly and helpful people are. Um, I've gotten, I think the group has like 400 people in it now. Um, so that's, that's been amazing. People have been sharing their sightings. People have also been sharing like, uh, sightings going way back a lot further than, um, we thought that the snakes were there. So like back to the seventies, back to the fifties, people have been saying that, you know, their grandparents saw a snake, um, way back when. So that's, that's been really, really interesting to actually talk to people and talk to the community about what's going on. Cause it, there's always like the, the scientific story doesn't always tell like what the the community story is so it's been really cool to actually talk to people and 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 get that information that that only like the local people have yeah the uh, two last quick questions for you i mean again no, no, nothing personal it's the subject um <laughs> I, as a kid i remember there was always the myth about you know the island we we didn't have the right climate for snakes but clearly that's not true that is a myth for mm-hmm. garter snakes anyway correct yeah, yeah, it seems to be. Because, uh, you know, no, more um, more um, dangerous snakes could not survive in Newfoundland. Alive. Please no, tell me that. So- I will give you that. That is okay. one thing that I will tell you. You're not at risk of any rattlesnakes, cobras, mambas, uh, any vipers, Good. anything like that. They, they well, need much warmer climates to, to survive. So we don't have to worry say, about anything. Uh, <laughs> anything like you that. haven't listened to Open Line long enough to know that sometimes those are guests on this program. Teasing, audience. <laughs> teasing, audience. Now, the last thing I got to know, because you, you know your snakes. So tell me this. Is the tale of St. Patrick true? Did he read? drive the snakes out of Ireland or is that a biblical myth so 
very likely that was sort of a metaphor for um, changes in the times in in Ireland back in the day. Um, so, like Newfoundland, we think that there weren't any snakes on Ireland post glaciation anyway. So, if there were snakes uh, in St. Patrick's Day, somebody put them there. Right on. All right. Well, I am going to leave it there. Thank you. You were awesome, Andrea, to put up with my inane humor. But uh, seriously, this is a great, great project. And the people of Cornerbrook, you will never see me. But anyway, thank you, Andrea. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. Great to chat. Take care. All right. Uh, I'm going to line one next. Who am I talking to, Sarah? Who's up on line one? Is that Perry? Hello? Good morning. How are you, sir? I am good. How are you? What's on your mind? Not too bad. Uh, I'm calling uh, to get some insight on a uh, on a 2023 Newfoundland Labrador budget. Okay. There was an announcement made uh, when VOCM now had had that on uh, live on on VOCM. There was an announcement made by the uh, the finance minister, the provincial finance minister, that there was supposed to be a five percent increase in the 2023 budget for uh, seniors and low-income people, like in people on income support or whatever, and seniors. Now, having said that, I have seen a posting on VOCM this morning that said that the legislature has officially passed a 2023 provincial budget. Government first introduced the budget back on March 23rd. Yes, I'd seen that, sir, that they had passed the budget. Yeah, that's right. Go ahead. And, uh, okay, uh, first introduced the budget back on March 23rd and has spent... Uh, time debating the details of it since then yesterday the budget passed with a mm -hmm. now that might have been a couple of days previous to this but yesterday the budget passed with a vote of uh, 21 to 15. all liberal members voted uh in favor of it as did independent uh members pauline and uh, eddie joyce all members of the pcs and ndp voted against the document now the question i i, I need if you can answer i will is, try yeah, it's right. Uh, there was an announcement of a 5% increase for seniors and uh, uh, people on low income. Now, since that budget has been passed in the legislature, uh, have you heard of any of anything with regards to a 5% increase in that, in that provincial budget for seniors and low income people? No, I have not, but I can do a little bit of digging for you over the course of the show. What I will tell you, sir, just, and this is general, um, knowing, yeah. having some experience with how budgets pass, um, there yeah. usually then is what they call, which you would expect, an implementation period. I don't know what the implementation period is here and when you will see that benefit come in. And uh, since right. COVID, a lot of governments, including Newfoundland and Labrador, have been much faster at um, getting support mechanisms like that out to people. But I will, if there is somebody from Minister Cody's office who would like to call, we will take the call and get you the answer. They can call Sarah and let us know. But I, I fail for you this morning as I don't have a precise answer. Yeah, because I, uh, because I called the Premier's office there about uh, uh, three weeks ago because people have been asking me this and uh, and I inquired to the Premier's office and I talked to his secretary and uh, and she said that uh, I mentioned about the 5% increase uh, that was announced in that budget of 2023, a provincial budget, Newfoundland and Labrador here. And she said that it was, uh, at that time, it was still being debated in the House of Assembly. Now, having said that, uh, Tim, that, that uh, the news that I'm getting on BOCM, the posting 
online there, that which I just read to you, was yeah. uh, that budget of 2023 has been passed for legislature. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it seems to be a lot of confusion. With the, like the people are saying uh, 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 that uh, it's 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 see, we uh, the people that seen I believe the people on income support last November of 2022 received a five percent increase, but that wouldn't be. For 2023 budget, would it? Would you? Would, would Again, you know I don't know the. I don't know if if, if I don't want to speak out of turn. I will find out um, because I, I. If they spoke to it as a new measure, and I don't have the language in front of me, so I don't want to get it wrong. I don't know, but I just go back and say what I said a moment ago. You know, the budget I think passed Thursday, Friday. It it would not be unusual for it to take a bit more time. You know, your best bet may be to call the MHA, whether the person is conservative, New Democrat. Democrat or liberal uh, and get a get an answer from them they can get this stuff usually fairly quickly right 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 but if, if there is any uh, insight that you can get maybe they be able yep. to announce it over the news or whatever and, we will uh, do it all right okay. sir thank you for your call good luck I hope you don't have to wait too long thank you have a nice day sir all right time you too uh, time for another break here on VOCM's open line back with more of your calls no more snakes back shortly well, welcome back. If you've seen those images out of Halifax, you know how dire the circumstances have been around uh, the Halifax Regional Municipality at Hammonds Plains and Tantallon and elsewhere. And our thoughts and prayers, of course, are with the people of Halifax. Yesterday on uh, VOCM's Your Mornings, uh, Dan Barton was able to join us. Uh, Dan, of course, is a director of programming for Stingray across Atlantic Canada, and he's here again. Dan, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing this morning? I, well, I'm okay. I'm a nice sunny day, no smoke in the air, uh, all very calm. Yeah. I had said to the listeners last week I was in your uh, city for the uh, Blue Nose Marathon, and as you know, on that day, it was cold and rainy, and who would have expected a week later uh, to have the horror you're living through there? What, what, what's the update on where things stand right now, Dan? Well, where things stand, we're, we're actually a bit hopeful today. Uh, I had mentioned uh, on your station yesterday that, that fear was really what was permeating everybody's feelings because it was really windy yesterday. We had winds up to 40. Um, the fact that uh, our fire departments and DNR managed to slow the spread of the fire in those conditions yesterday has us very hopeful because today the winds are very light, about 8 kilometers per hour. So it's ideal conditions as far as trying to fight the fire. Um, so we're hopeful that we will get closer to containment. And I say closer to containment because the, the fire is still out of control. For those not familiar, once it's contained, it means that they know it's not going to spread. Yes, it will still be burning, but then we don't have to worry about spread anymore. And we're certainly not there yet. I, I saw the deputy fire chief on uh, uh, this morning. I believe it was a clip from yesterday. He looks very composed. But uh, my goodness, how are the first responders holding up? Uh, that is uh, a hell of a, a, a territory to, to contain and try and manage, and uh, it's been challenging times for first responders across the country. How are they holding up, and how are they being supported? Well, I think they're holding up as best they can. Um, certainly, they're a very stoic bunch. I mean, when you talk about the, the fire chief, and he was still very calm. They are maintaining calm because they understand if they're not calm, no one else is going to be calm. So... They're, they're doing their, their duty and getting a lot of support, and, and I have to say while I'm talking to listeners from Newfoundland, we really appreciate the support we're getting from our friends in Newfoundland and Labrador. That water bomber is making a huge difference, going to make an even larger difference today with those winds dying down. 
So, I, I mean, they're just trying to support each other. They've, they've asked a lot of the community in terms of, of being diligent, paying attention to EMO, and, and as hard as it is on residents here, there's a real feel that everyone is banding together so we can get this done. And this is not the first time in recent memory that there's been a significant wildfire in Nova Scotia, correct? I was talking to somebody from the Windsor area last night, and they said there was one that wasn't uh, wasn't all that long ago. So is this an irregular or now a regular occurrence? And I say that to you, Dan, noting what's happening in British Columbia, what's happening in Alberta, that unfortunately we seem to be seeing more wildfires. Yeah, in British Columbia in particular, that's an annual event. I mean, I, yeah. I know that they deal with it on a regular basis. What you're talking about in Windsor, that was actually in 2008, which is okay. not that long ago, but not close enough that you would say, okay, well, this is a regular event for us. Um, uh, two last questions for you because I appreciate you're busy. Um, the Federal Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, said yesterday or the day before in speaking about all of this, you know, he is concerned about how back to those first responders, how how they are going to be over the course of the summer. Uh, is, there an, is there that concern in Nova Scotia as well? Because when you have big events like this, it takes time, it takes manpower. As you pointed out, this is uh, going to take more days to, to address. Uh, has, have you heard that concern at a local level that you, we, there may be a worry about burnout as the summer season isn't even yet upon us yet? Yeah, there definitely is that concern. And what we're hoping is that our residents can take a lesson from this. When we've got burn orders on, and there was a a no burn order on, it has to be taken seriously because we see what the result can be when someone decides that it doesn't apply to them. So we're, we're hopeful that residents can take a lesson from this. But yeah, absolutely. Burnout among our first responders, it's a definite concern and we need to do everything we can to support them. Yeah, last question for you. Uh, that is Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, we were so supported, and, and so was Nova Scotia, Dan, when Fiona hit. I mean, it seems like we talk about more um, more uh, active God tragedies these days than, uh, the, than we did when we were growing up. Um, certainly the Red Cross came to the aid of Newfoundland and Labrador, Toronto Maple Leafs, so many people. How can we in Newfoundland and Labrador help the people of Nova Scotia now beyond the water bombers and the human resources we've sent over there? Really, I I think that opportunity is going to present itself as the days go by. I mean, we have 16,000 Nova Scotians that have been displaced from their homes. We don't know how many are going to be able to go back. The last count that we had, there were 200 structures that were either damaged or destroyed. And and that's the official report. We figure that the number will probably be much higher than that by the time this is all done. So once we are able to fully assess what happened, once this fire is finally contained and then, then put out, that's when we're going to see what's what's needed for support. And I know that a lot of those 16,000 displaced Nova Scotians are going to need some sort of support. Okay, I lied. I have one half last question, and that is uh, Premier, <laughs> Premier Houston did ask, or uh, did announce yesterday, $500 per person support. How is that playing out so far? Uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure. When that announcement okay. came out, I thought, well, that, that's a good start. Um, okay. Certainly a lot of these people who weren't able to, loo- to leave with any of their clothing or, or had to leave some personal effects behind, that's certainly something that's going to help them to start. But I think financial aid for these people is going to be a big, big need in the coming days and weeks. All right. Well, appreciate the time today, Dan. Thank you. Our thoughts are with you. And as you know, your Stingray family in Newfoundland and Labrador are always uh, here to help, as you have done for us at, in different occasions. Thank you. And thank you so much.
All right, that was uh, Dan Barton, who's the program director for the Maritimes of Stingray. Actually, uh, Sarah, I'm going to go to Pam Stone right now, then I'll come to Tracy. So, Pam, you're on line four. You are with the Lymphoma, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. You are a survivor, and you're part of the massive Greg Smith campaign to, to raise money. How are you, and how is it going? Yeah, good morning, Tim. Hi, uh, Pam here. Um, yeah, really good on my end. Um, as you mentioned, blood cancer survivor, um, survived lymphoma last year. I was actually reflecting yesterday, and it was 10 months ago yesterday I finished my last round of wow. chemo. Yeah, so I'm back to um, what I would good say my, my new normal. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and you're feeling you're feeling well as well as you can feel at this juncture in your journey because it is a journey the healing journey is a long one with with cancers like that right Pam? Yes, yeah. Um, I feel the journey probably goes on forever now once you start yeah. on that uh, on that journey. But uh, yeah, back to all my regular activities and back to full time work, and uh, I'm feeling really good, feeling very strong. I would say. Now. Greg's campaign. I look. I love the man. He has done so much, and I'm sure it's being well respected by the uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada to just dive deep into this campaign. Give him a push here today, Pam. I mean, I, I can't give him any more money. He's got he's got a lot <laughs> a, a bit off me and my family, and I'd love to give him everything I have. I can't. But Greg's trying to uh, trying to get to his final uh, milestone. What would you say to the people who are listening about whether it be donating to Greg or any of the other heroes in this campaign? Yeah, I mean, anything that anyone can give or can contribute to this campaign. Um, I'm living proof um, of what the Leukemia Lymphoma Society of Canada does um, for patients and their families um, living with and surviving blood cancers. Um, so, yeah, anything that can be done is, is welcome, of course. And uh, Greg has done a phenomenal job. Uh, I joined his team, actually, and I, I got to know him through this campaign. I, I saw that I'm he was... sorry about that. I mean, you had to get to know him. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I asked him, I said, can I join your team and, and help out in any way I can and just to, to share my story and, and give hope um, to anyone that's going through um, a blood cancer or any type of cancer, for that matter, at this time. And uh, he's done such a remarkable job in engaging the entire community. I think he's got every organization and company um, here in Newfoundland and in Labrador involved in this. So um, get out and buy your chocolate bars or, or your T-shirts or, uh, or um, you know, give a little bit of change to his campaign. It, it goes a long way. Yeah, Pam, don't tell Greg you got a nickel in your pocket because he'll come and take it out. I mean, he's... he's <laughs> He's, he's very good at all of that. Well, well, listen, good luck to you on your journey. Thank you for supporting Greg. And, again, we encourage everybody who can. I think the campaign ends tomorrow, right? Is that when the current campaign ends? I mean, you can always give money, but does it end tomorrow, Pam? Yes, uh, tomorrow's the last day of the campaign, and then uh, Greg's the only um, – candidate or, uh, from Newfoundland. So uh, his team, Newfoundland Strong, we're really pushing, hopefully, you know, Newfoundland's finally getting a piece in all this, which is excellent. So, um, yeah, really grateful to Greg and his team, and I'm glad to be part of it. So, All right. Well, thank you. Thank you on behalf of Greg. Thank you on behalf of uh, VOCM. I know you know the station's fully behind him. You heal well, and uh, it was a pleasure talking to you this morning. Thanks, Tim. All have right, a great have a day. Good day. All right, that was Pam Stone. All right, Tracy, you're on the line. We are gonna we are going to get you 
slightly later. Please hang around or talk to Sarah. We'll get you on after. We're going to take the news now, and when we come back, I believe we will have Chris Aylworth, the president of the Public Service Alliance of Canada, and more of your calls. Time for the news here on VOCM. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Well, welcome back to Open Line. Tim Powers in for Patty and with uh, Sarah Strickland today. You can reach us at openline at vocm.com. You can, of course, call Sarah and you can get me on Twitter at Powers Tim. Now, uh, pleased to welcome to the program to talk about something that's happening with the Callowit Housing Authority. Chris Aylward, the president of the Public Service Alliance of Canada. Chris, how are you? I'm very well, Tim. How are you? Well, uh, I am good. I, I had to say, I, during the PSAC strike, I, I got to give you credit, my friend, for energy. I saw you going up and down and everywhere, uh, working with your workers to try and get a deal. You, in my opinion, you, you got a pretty good deal. I know you're trying to ratify that now, but uh, uh, you were you were a ball of energy uh, and uh, and good for you in the work you did there. Well, that's that's what I might have looked from the from the outside. <laughs> well, Chris, we all know it's a show from from time to time until you get the actual outcome. But that aside, tell us about a Callaway. And just before you jump in, just from my perspective, to give the um, the listeners some background. So, uh, in a Callaway, the housing authority falls under the responsibility of administration with the federal government because of different. Uh, covenants that govern territorial administration. Thus, you have workers uh, that you represent there. The Iqaluit Housing Authority, as I understand it, has now been on strike for over 70 days, and replacement workers are being brought in. And for the audience's purpose, and Chris knows as well, uh, the government has proposed to bring in um, a replacement worker um, legislation that would restrict the use of res- replacement workers by uh, different organizations. So with that scene set, Chris, tell us what's going on up there and, and, and what is happening with your members. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Uh, yes, and, and you're, you're very accurate here with your, with your background description, for sure. I mean, you know, 70 days now, more than 70 days on, uh, on, uh, on strike up there. Uh, the employer is offering them 7.25% over five years, uh, which is absolutely crazy when you look at the cost of living in Nunavut. Put on top of that, what the employer is doing, they're bringing in replacement workers, they're bringing in scabs, they're bringing in scabs from the south to do this work that Inuit workers are doing uh, in Iqaluit. So, so that's shameful in itself. Then they're paying housing and meal allowance that they won't even pay their own workers. Uh, but yet they're paying these, uh, these scab workers uh, up there. So, and, and what's Seamus O'Regan, the federal minister of labor, what's he doing about this? Absolutely nothing. He, Friday we were in a Calibre. Where was he? He was in Mexico tweeting out that he was in Mexico because he believes in workers and he believes in unions. Seamus O'Regan has got to stop saying he believes in workers and believes in unions, and he's got to start demonstrating that. Because when he's so, got 13 workers in the Iqaluit locked out, the employers using scabs, paying the scabs more than they're prepared to pay their own workers, Seamus O'Regan should be ashamed of himself to call himself the Federal Minister of Labor with that situation going on up there. And like I said, on Friday when we were up there, where was he? He was in Mexico. Seamus O'Regan, yeah, I- mean, he, he needs to get off his earth and start doing things and just stop tweeting about, I support workers, I, I, I support the unions. 
and, and, and start demonstrating that, Tim. I mean, and the guy, when you look, he's promised anti-scab legislation. The House is going to recess in a few weeks. Back at the end of September, where's the anti-scab legislation? Still nowhere to be seen. When do you actually expect that, Chris? Because uh, that, that, that's a key point. Uh, when they, they've talked about it for a while, have you got any sense of when that's going to come is question one. And question two is, had there been any outreach to Minister O'Regan's office about what was happening in Iqaluit and what have the federal government been doing to resolve it? Well, the, the first issue on the uh, uh, your first question there, Tim. On I, the I scab legislation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were consulted last fall uh, on it. They, they reached out to the unions and, and, and did some consultation on the anti-scab legislation. We have heard nothing since, and we have heard nothing since. And as I said, okay. the House is going to recess in a few weeks. Back at the end of September, I mean, it, you know, they've said, they promised by the end of this, this year, but I, I, I'm highly doubtful if, if we're going to see anti-scab legislation by the end of this year. Uh, and as I said, Minister Labor, uh, Minister uh, O'Regan, uh, he's got to start doing things rather than just uh, tweeting out stuff. Had, had there been any outreach? So that was my other question. Had there been any uh, outreach yeah. to his office? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I'm sick and tired of reaching out to, to Minister O'Regan, uh, not just on this issue, but on other issues as well. Uh, you know, no return phone calls, no return text messages. All, all, he get, all he says is that I'll check with the team. I'll check with the team. I mean, he, uh, like I said, I mean, the, the guy is almost uh, absent from the portfolio. Um, and what about mediator? Uh, is that an option in this circumstance? Uh, we've attempted that. Uh, the employer is, you know, saying no. They're 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 not at, uh, interested uh, in mediation up there. Uh, and look, the the only person that that should be up there mediating this is Seamus O'Regan, the federal minister of labor, who continuously talks about the anti-scab legislation and the, the workers' right to strike. But yet, is he up in the Calumet? No. Where is he? He's in Mexico. I mean, that, as you know, some, and I'm not defending uh, the minister here, but there is international travel that's required and all that, but I get what in, he, in his job and striking relationships with Mexico is important, and to be fair to him, as I recall, he was fairly involved in the WestJet file, but I, I get it. I mean, your, your workers should expect the same thing as, as WestJet employees, uh, that there, there should be engagement here. Um, uh, Tim, so, Tim, while we're talking about the, real, the, the, the crux of this, really, we're, not, you know, we're, we're talking about 13 Inuit workers working in their home community on strike and now looking at scabs going in doing their jobs every day from the south. How can how can the minister of labor how can he say that that's that's okay that that's acceptable? And yes, I get it. I mean, I I know the minister has to to, to travel obviously internationally, but he has not leaned in on this situation not once not one peep from Chambers O'Regan on this. 13 Inuit workers on strike in their community, and they're bringing in from outside the community to, to perform their work. James O'Regan has got to get involved in this. All right. Well, we'll leave it there, Chris. As you know, this is a very good platform to get politicians engaged. And if uh, Minister O'Regan would like to call or somebody from the federal government would like to call and respond to you today, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll give them that opportunity. Good to talk to you, Chris. I hope this uh, situation in Iqaluit, for the sake of all involved, gets resolved soon. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you.
Take care. Bye. That was Chris Aylward, president of PSAC. Not very happy with uh, with uh, Minister O'Regan. Of course, if uh, Minister O'Regan is listening or his team, they are welcome to respond. I think before I go to the break, uh, we're going to go to line three. Uh, somebody, I think it's Ryan, wants to talk about uh, Terry Ryan. Are you there? Hello, uh, Tim. It's good to talk to you. How are you? I'm pretty good. Look, you were saying that Terry Ryan Sr. is getting a... Uh, an honor. I I didn't particularly f- uh, follow what you were talking about. Well, uh, I phoned in to congratulate Terry. Mm-hmm. I met Terry, and I I'm not I, I'm a sort of a, a distant friend of his. I only talk to him every now and then. But you know, I met Terry when he was teaching at St. Pat's, that was mm-hmm. a Catholic school here in St. John's, and you know. The young students up there, and many of them didn't have parents, and mm-hmm. you know, it was pretty sad. And you know, Terry was very, very good to all those students, and they really, really liked him, you know? And one thing about Terry Diabmar, he told a good story. He, he's a good storyteller, absolutely. And he was excited about his playing days out in Grand Falls and uh, out in playing with Hamilton. And, and he t- I always had stories to tell. And he was always excited, and he was excited about life. And uh, people probably don't know it, but his son, Terry Ryan mm-hmm. Jr., uh, appeared many times on Hudson and Rex. Yep. And he w- he himself was a draft by the Montreal Canadiens and wrote a book about his uh, playing days as playing down the minor leagues. And it was a hilarious book. So his son is quite a quite an accomplished person himself. I think he played on the uh, ball hockey team that won the World Yeah, Championship. he's won a couple of ball hockey championships. Yeah, he has a podcast, uh, Tales with TR, which is, inter- is, is, is in- I sent him a note and said, Terry, I enjoy running and listening to the, your storytelling on the on the podcast. But I, just on his dad, I got to say, yeah, that enthusiasm, that passion as a, as a student uh, at a young, impressionable age was so amazing. Like, he's done so much on the athletic fields and on the ice and all of that, but uh, he that that enthusiasm was just infectious, and I, I still remember he came into the classroom with a stick he got from he has from Bobby Hull, and I would and you know the curve on the stick was <laughs> it was just out yeah. of this world, and uh, I was telling my son that story this year because he's sort of come alive to some of the great hockey heroes, and uh, Terry's story is being told now forty years later to to my kid as uh, as, uh, as as a treasured memory. So good on him for all of that, and what what I had said, Ron was he's um, according to his son on a tweet that I'd seen last night he's being recognized in uh, in Grand Falls with having his jersey hung on uh, on the rafters uh, uh, there for for his achievements so you know, that's Tim, what I was talking about you know, Tim, I met uh, two professional hockey players and had extensive discussions with them one was Terry yeah. and the other was Dave Manson Dave yeah oh uh, Dave Manson yeah yeah, and uh, I actually worked in Prince Albert uh, for 31 years teaching. And I met Dave at our school one day, and he sat down and had coffee with me. And, you know, Dave had the same enthusiasm about his sport as Terry did. And he also told a good story, you know. So, again, it looks good on Terry to be honored. He should be honored. Uh, he's a wonderful man. He's a great family man. His son uh, is out to do well for himself. So uh, congratulations to Terry. I, uh, I learned a lot from him. And God, if, if we have more people like Terry, I think it would be a better world. 
Yep. Uh, I don't disagree with, uh, with any of that. All right. Good to talk to you, Ron. You have a good day. Okay. Thanks a lot. Okay. That, uh, that was Ron talking about Terry Ron. Time for a break here. When we come back, we have uh, the Minister of Education, Dr. John Hagee, who wants to talk about uh, early childhood educators and, and recognize them. Back with Dr. Hagee after this. Welcome back to Open Line. We now have uh, Dr. John Hagee, the Minister of Education, on the line to talk about Early Childhood Educator Week. I think I have that right, do I, Dr. Hagee? You do indeed. How are you today? I'm good, sir. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. Yes, uh, this week is Early Childhood Educator Week. Um, I think I wanted to ring uh, and uh, just put this out there through your uh, your uh, program today. Um, we have worked hard with the Association of Early Childhood Educators over the last uh, couple of years mm-hmm. to really uh, change the, the dial a little bit on early childhood educators. Um, I don't think really there was enough awareness and appreciation of the kind of role that they do play and can play. Um, we have been concentrating on childcare, and right. the department and um, the Association of Educators really wants to focus more on early learning and childcare. And I think some of the things that we've done over uh, previous um, months uh, have uh, tried to move that dial uh, to uh, attract people into the profession, uh, because it is a profession, uh, and also attract people back from having left the profession. Uh, We have now nearly uh, 8,600 spaces in the province, and we're working hard to increase that number. But one of the limiting factors has been the availability of ECEs. So um, we're adding a a total of 700 new seats. Uh, There's nearly uh, 250 going to graduate this month from Mm -hmm. CNA. And then the private training institutes uh, programs staggered over the year uh, into the fall. So um, I just want to ring in and make people aware and and say thank you to them because of the job they do. It's crucial. And uh, it's uh, nice to take time just to recognize that. Yeah, I fully agree on all of that. Just two policy-based questions because you you will know this as well. The debate, and I've I've talked to people in different organizations who uh, engage ECEs, who work with ECEs, and everybody respects ECEs, or at least they should. The challenge with retention and recruitment is compensation and pay. Are we seeing any movement in that regard, Dr. Hagee? Yes, is the short answer. Particularly on the recruitment piece, once the wage grid was announced, which uh, is tied to $25 an hour for a a brand new level two uh, ECE, uh, once that wage grid was announced, both CNA and the private training institutes who offer uh, early childhood education programs uh, actually had to staff up on their phone lines. Uh, If you are EI eligible or an EI recipient, uh, for example, uh, combined with uh, uh, the new places we've created, this is a very attractive option for uh, you know what is now uh, a much more financially sustainable um, career. Uh, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, we know there's between six and eight hundred people who have ECE certificates that are not working any longer in the childcare sector, and uh, they left because of economic reasons. Uh, we are now um, one of, if not the most competitive uh, wage structures for ECEs in Canada. 
Yeah, I, I have a, a, f- a very good friend here who was an ECE and uh, went to work at Winners because the salary was just not competitive enough, and let's hope that trajectory continues. All right, we'll leave it there, Dr. Haggie. Thanks for the call today. Uh, just one more comment before I sure. go, if you wouldn't mind. Um, I'd just like to say, as MHA, congratulations to Nick Mercer of Gander, mm-hmm. who has been awarded the Joanne Juto ECE Scholarship um, from uh, the Association of Early Childhood Educators uh, for having the best marks in his course. He graduates from CNA here this year, uh, in this month in actual fact, and we'll be entering the workforce. So as uh, a proud MHA, uh, thank you, Mr. Mercer. Yeah, well done. Echo that. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, all right. That was Dr. John Haggy. Uh, we'll move on. Verna, you're on the line to talk about uh, Belline and Ferries. Go ahead. Good morning. I'm calling morning, regards Ver- to... Morning. I'm calling into the lack of service of the Bell Island Ferries. Uh, the Legionnaire was down for a week, mechanical. Mm-hmm. She came back on Sunday. She was having problems Sunday morning with the ramp. Today, she's really having problems with the ramp. Now we don't. We're down to one, the Flanders. Today is the gas run, which means the gas truck comes over, brings the gas over, and there's only allowed 25 people on that trip as well. So mm-hmm. as of uh, 8 o'clock this morning, we're down to the Flanders now. People trying to get over to work, doctor's appointments, other essential services, we're down to that one boat. The transportation and infrastructure, which is also to do with the high roads, they have few uh, equipment in the lineup going over to Belle Isle, uh, from coming from Belle Isle over to St. John's, instead of leaving that equipment on the island and maybe doing a few patches here, mm-hmm. they had it in the lineup, taking up spots on the boat that would have been beneficial to people going over for their dialysis treatments, going over for their work. But no, in the same department, transportation and infrastructure, they were aware we were down to one boat. Did they haul that equipment up? and wait until to see if the Legionnaire is coming on or wait till it's not a bit as busy as it is in the morning. They continued, took up that three spots with two p- big pieces of equipment, plus their truck with the workers to go over to the other side. I don't think that's fair to Belle Island, and I don't think anybody in that department is looking out for Belle Island other than to upset them more or try to upset them more. And, I mean, we deserve answers to why this boat keeps breaking down. What are they, who have they got working on these boats? Is it plumbers? Because it's, it's all mechanical. But to be down for a week and then a day and a half, she's down again. So, I mean, we're no, word, no word from, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, no word from the Department of Transportation. Uh, have you got oh, no. any? No. Okay. The only information we get now is on the 511. They, they put that in place so that you they post it to what's going on in regards to roads being down because of storms or the ferries being down because of mechanical. They don't want to talk to people. They just want to put it out there and to try to get a hold of somebody, which I did. I called uh, John Baker's uh, office this morning. I spoke to a gentleman, and he said he would look into it. But that equipment still went. 
And it would, it would have only taken one cop to the transportation here on the island to say, look, guys, stay on the island, do some patchwork, because we definitely need that, too, because all we've got is potholes. We don't have much on the high roads to uh, drive on. So there's a lot of work that can be done here. It's not like they it was essential to get over to St. John's today. Yeah. Well, I get. Uh, sorry, I get your frustration. That it, uh, it, it seems to be a rite of passage every time around this time of year when I do this show. There's always issues with the Bell Island Ferry. I can only imagine if I were a resident uh, or had family over there how uh, utterly frustrating it would be um, if the Department of Transport, if the minister want to call, uh, will uh, will get their explanation for you. Yeah, Anything else you quickly want to add? Well, the thing is, you you hit the nail. Right on the head there. It's this time of the year. The tourists are coming to transportation. We always get dinged. Who's going to come to Bell Island with one boat? Yeah, Again, it's, it's almost like, go away. Don't come home. Yeah, it's the, the, the message, yeah, the message, is, it's not made easy. And it's, uh, and, and again, they're... not come home here for Bell Island. <laughs> <laughs> not with the ferry service transportation, anyway. You know, Vernon, you can make some money if you put that T-shirt out there. Maybe you could use the profits then to get a, a boat that actually works. Anyway, good to have you on, yeah, Verna. Thank, thank you. Have a great day. Bye you now. too. All right, time for a break here on Open Line. Back with your calls after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. The show's flying along this morning, and we've got one of the independents joining us now from Mount Pearl Southlands, the member of the House of Assembly, Paul Lane, who wants to talk about Eddie Joyce, who we had on yesterday uh, celebrating, recognizing his long career. Paul, how are you? I'm uh, great, Tim, and um, thanks for having me on. Uh, before I get to my subject, I did want to throw out, well, my subject, I guess, is to throw out a couple of bouquets. Uh, before I get to that, though, I just want to uh, certainly send um, my thoughts and prayers, best wishes to uh, our Deputy Mayor, uh, Nicole Kiley. Certainly thinking of her and her family, and of course, uh, my daughter, Chelsea, serves on council with Nicole, and they're good friends. And uh, as a dad myself, um, you know, I, I can tell you, I can't imagine what her dad is going through right now. But uh, oh, um, certainly sending uh, our prayers and our hopes that, uh, that she'll get through this and, uh, and, um, and to all the family. And I know that uh, after hearing from a lot of people in uh, Mount Pearl, and I know that she has her whole community certainly behind her. Well said, Paul. And uh, like you, as a father, I can't think of anything worse than having one of your children be in a serious yeah. accident, regardless of the child's age. So thank you. Well Absolutely. said. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, I, I did want to throw out a couple of bouquets this morning. Yep. Um, the first one I'm going to start with is my colleague uh, uh, who represents uh, Bell Island, the, uh, the leader of the official opposition, Dave Brazel. And uh, I have to say that uh, when... Uh, Dave took over, uh, I guess, as the interim leader of the uh, PC party. Uh, as one member of the House Assembly who, who sits there every day and listens intently uh, to what's going on and tries to contribute, I have to say that Dave brought a totally uh, new and different tone to the House uh, in that role. It was certainly much more conciliatory. Uh, I will say that... Uh, uh, you know, he did his job as he's expected to do as leader of the official opposition and 
bringing forth all the issues and uh, and, uh, and 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 raising concerns where necessary, holding government's feet uh, to the fire. But at the same time, I felt that he did it in a very conciliatory way uh, and and offered all suggestions and solutions. And he wasn't just uh, you know complaining for complaining's sake. And uh, I thought he did a remarkable job. And I think he's a good guy and a good constituency guy anyway. Never, I've never heard him. I don't think I've ever, um, in, in my time with Dave uh, in 12 years, I don't think there's a mean bone in his body, to be honest with you. Yeah. He's always got that, that, that really uh, calm, measured approach to things. A great guy. And I think he did a great job. And uh, so I just want to thank him for his service in that regard. And, of course, he's still going to be in the House Assembly. Yeah, but he's not the, done uh, yet. He, he, I, said, I said to Dave yesterday, it be an interesting retirement home. Him, Eddie, you eventually will join it. My God, who would get a word in edgewise in that group, Paul? Uh, I don't know. It would be, it'd be a challenge for sure. But one thing I do know is that we would all get along. Uh, we would all get along great because at the end of the day, regardless of uh, uh, what political stripe or, or no political stripe, uh, we may be, um, you know, for the most part, most of us do get along and we are friends. And uh, so I, I just wanted to throw that bouquet yep. out today. Uh, the second one, of course, and you already mentioned it, is uh, my good friend Eddie Joyce. And I had the pleasure of uh, attending his uh, event uh, over the weekend at the Curling Lions Club. I was certainly glad to be there and to uh, uh, roast him a little bit, in, in all in good fun, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's no doubt that Eddie has made a tremendous contribution to the Humber Bay of Islands. The people in his district absolutely, uh, you know, adore him. I can certainly see why, and and I can certainly speak to the fact, even in my time in the House Assembly, you know, with Eddie Joyce, as far as I'm concerned, that uh, we would not be having a, uh, a radiation uh, for, for cancer patients, a radiation treatment at going into that uh, new Western Memorial Hospital, if it were not for Eddie Joyce, in my view. Certainly, um, when I've seen the increase now um, in, uh, in uh, cataract surgeries that were announced by government, and particularly on the West Coast, I can tell you that Eddie was like a dog with a bone for the last couple of years on that one out of his concern for seniors in his district and throughout the West Coast and through the province for that matter. And I'm, and I can tell you that, uh, that he put on an awful lot of pressure. He was relentless. And now we're seeing, um, we're seeing government react to that, which is wonderful. And I also seen a situation when he was in the opposition and um, uh, was under, I think it was the Dunderdale administration at the time. And uh, when they were having issues with the Cornerbrook pulp and paper mill, and Eddie was sitting in uh, opposition, but he came across the floor and, and reached out to, I believe, of Jerome Kennedy at the time and uh, other ministers, uh, even though he was, an op- he was in the official opposition. Mm-hmm. And he arranged meetings with the union, with the company, and so on, and helped broker a deal in that regard. So, you know, uh, he is a true constituency MHA and that's the greatest legacy that any MHA can leave in my opinion as Tip O'Neill the great American politician said all politics is local and certainly that is true you got to always look after the people who look after you and uh, Eddie and uh, Dave have certainly done that all right got to leave it there Paul got to take another call thank you for uh, for uh, calling us today 
Thank you, Tim. All the very best. Have a great day. Okay, that was uh, Paul Lane, independent MHA for Mount Pearl Southlands. Now, going to uh, move to uh, talking to Petra Chafee-Johnson, who is with Easter Seals, Newfoundland and Labrador, and she is the Horizons Work Experience and Secure Futures Program Officer. Petra, how are you? Hi, uh, I'm pretty good. How are you? I am good, thanks. Um, the Horizons Work Experience Program um, got our attention. Tell us a little bit about it and, and what it is intended to do and who it hopes to serve. All right. Well, so the Horizons Program is a program that is designed to help support youth between the age of 16 and 30 years old who are facing barriers to employment. Uh, so those barriers can include, you know, being an early leaver of high school, a young parent, person with a criminal background or disability. Uh, so what Easter Seals does mostly is uh, we prioritize folks who identify as having a disability in this program. Um, so every 10 months we have an intake of 10 people and we start with four weeks of pre-employment training. So that means we're going to be, we make resumes, write cover letters, learn how to search for jobs, build interview skills and work on workplace etiquette. And then uh, we complete professional certifications like first aid, WEMIS, and occupational health and safety. <clears throat> and then after those four weeks, our, our participants are ready for employment. And then uh, we continue to meet one day a week uh, for the remainder of the program. Um, and where we just kind of have more certifications, such as like for service best, food safety, forklift forklift training, whatever's needed for uh, the person to be successful in the workplace. And uh, Petra, how is the, the, do you provide placement services? How, and how is the take up for these young people who are, who courageously take on this program? Um, well, it's actually, it's pretty good. Uh, there are definitely challenges, but there's quite a few successes. Um, so awesome. when a participant, yeah, when a participant is searching for a job, we, uh, we support them in whatever way they need us or want us to. So we can reach out to employers on their behalf, uh, join them in an interview or step back and just be there for them while they are securing employment. Um, but with the employers, uh, when they're hiring someone with a disability, we help uh, provide job coaches, uh, a wage subsidy, disability awareness training, and just help out with any accommodations or modifications that they might want. Two last questions for you. Um, first one is this. Um, with the labor market being as um, transitional as it is, meaning there's constant opportunities, it seems, that if people people are looking for employees, they're looking for people to come and commit to their companies, has this helped this program? Has it, has, has it helped in creating opportunities for, for your participants? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's... There's lots of new opportunities every day just because, well, oh my goodness, <laughs> um, every day that come up on the job board that, like, never really came up all the time before. before. Yeah. yeah. Now, last question, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't eat, uh, ask this. How can we help? Uh, and I, I know organizations like Easter Seals often solicit uh, public donations. How can we help you and help this program? Um, well, helping this program in particular, if you're an employer and you're looking for somebody, reach out to me. Um, I've got 
11 participants that are looking for work. <laughs> well, that's good, Petra. That's the best way to help. Yeah, get them employed. Uh, and I assume we can donate to Easter Seals generally if people wanted to do that. And some of the funding will obviously come your way to keep this program uh, sustainable. Absolutely. And the cabin lottery, too. <laughs> All right. The lot. Well, cabin lottery. You can't go wrong with that. All right, Petra. Thank you very much for your time. Good luck, uh, luck to your participants. And well, well done uh, to uh, each and every one of them for, for joining up. Appreciate your time today. All right. Thank you. All right, that was Petra Chafee Johnson from the uh, Easter, Easter Seals, Newfoundland, and Labrador. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about melanoma. I have the CEO of Melanoma Canada on the line, Fallon Katz, after this here on VOCM's Open Line. Welcome back to Open Line. Well, you know, I'm proudly in a conflict of interest on this one. I happen to be a volunteer member of the board of Melanoma Canada. I'm very happy to, to be so. As you know, uh, I've dealt with melanoma. My mother's dealt with melanoma a lot. Lots of people in Newfoundland and Labrador have dealt with melanoma. So blame this on me, this segment, but I think you'll all appreciate it. So I'm pleased with that little segue to be bringing on uh, my colleague and the chief executive officer of Melanoma Canada, Fallon Katz. Fallon, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Tim. How are you? I'm okay. And let me tell you, before I let Fallon go here, she's almost as good and maybe better than Greg Smith at raising money. So hold on to your wallets because you're going to hear some great appeals here that, uh, that are coming up. So teasing aside, Fallon, you've got so much on the go now. Let's start with this month. It is Melanoma Awareness Month. Just give us the general stats for people to be aware of the impact of melanoma on Canadians. Sure. Well, melanoma is the seventh most common cancer diagnosed in Canada, and unfortunately, three people die in this country every day. These are largely preventable deaths because 85% of melanomas are caused by UV rays from the sun or artificial sources like tanning beds. So there's a lot we can do during this month, but all year long to prevent these outcomes. And, uh, and so, you know, we can, uh, we can continue to raise awareness. We can t continue to raise funds and put on programs and activities uh, to change these outcomes for Canadians. And um, the, over the course of this month, one of the bigger fundraising activities has been undertaken for Melanoma Canada. I know you've put a ton of a uh, ton of effort into it. Uh, VOCM ran a story of, uh, of a Newfoundlander who was uh, part and parcel of a similar uh, a joint exercise to the Strides campaign. Talk a little bit about the Strides campaign, its intention, and how it went. Yes, so we had our annual Strides Walk. This year was the first year we uh, moved the time of our walk to practice what we preach. So it was called the Sunset <laughs> Edition of Strides Walk. So we encouraged participants across the country to walk outside of peak UV hours. So between 3 and 5 p.m. this year, our peak UV hours in Canada are between 11 a.m. And, and 3 p.m. Um, so, yeah, participants from coast to coast walked uh, five kilometers uh, outside of those peak UV hours. They raised uh, so far over 100. I think we're at over $173,000 uh, towards our goal. We're almost there, $200,000. Uh, really incredible fundraising efforts. And I want to just give a shout out to Team Rays of Hope out in Newfoundland on the Southern Shore uh, for their incredible efforts. And so you got that, folks. There's still still some money to be raised. And Fallon, if people want to raise, uh, give, donate money to this particular initiative, how do they do it? Sure. Uh, they can go online uh, on our website, uh, melanomacanada.ca. There's a big button on top that says Strides for Melanoma. Click there and, uh, and you can make your gift. If you want a gift to, to the Newfoundland teams, uh, just type in the city and, uh, and you can gift right away. 
So one of the amazing things that I have found since I've joined this organization, it'll be a year this year, is the um, work that Fallon and Annette Sear, the, the chair, outgoing chair, uh, who have been with the organization for a while, have done in looking to actually create opportunities for people to check and see if they may be at risk for melanoma. And it's really innovative and really creative. This year, Melanoma Canada, and full credit to Fallon and Annette and some of the people who've been here for a while, have established what I call the Mole Mobile, uh, which allows people, and it's started to circulate in Ontario, will eventually, not this year, and years to come, get to Newfoundland and Labrador, where you can go to a public location and be screened for uh, potential um, melanoma or other skin cancer-related illnesses. Uh, tell us all about this, uh, uh, this Fallon, because I, I think this is really cool and really innovative. Obviously, I have a bias, but nonetheless, I think it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's at the forefront of, uh, of, of opportunities for people to get tested. Yes, thank you. So yeah, the Molemobile uh, is Canada's first mobile skin cancer screening unit. It's tackling one of Canada's biggest healthcare challenges, which is access. And access to dermatologists have been a challenge long before the pandemic. There's only 700 in Canada for our entire population. It's like, I think it's over 38 and a half million now. Um, so a real big shortage uh, that we're facing. And the majority of dermatologists practice, of course, in major urban centers, leaving a lot of Canadians who live in remote or indigenous communities just without access, period. Uh, the average wait time in a major city to see a dermatologist can be six months plus. So if you are, you know, have if you have a mole or a lesion of, of concern, uh, waiting six months can be uh, something that's, that really causes a lot of anxiety and, and stress. Um, so the Mobile is bringing skin cancer screening to communities. So we're in Ontario this year uh, and we'll be heading across the country over the next five years, funding permitting. And uh, our goal is to visit these remote Indigenous and under serve communities as well as areas that have a long wait time to see a dermatologist to screen Canadians because if detected early like is the case for most cancers um, a lot of melanomas can be easily treated and, and cured. Uh, and uh, I will say it's been up around the Ottawa area already. It's been in and around uh, Toronto. The the plan is, because, of course, this is what the fundraising is for, to continue to, the journey for it to go across the country. Uh, and if you can support, lend support. I'll leave it there. There's so many other programs, but I've, I've got to move on. Fallon, thanks for your time today. And, and again, if people want to donate, where do we send them? To the Mobile. They can donate at mobile.ca. All right. Thank you. Good to talk to you today. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Take care. That was Fallon Katz, the CEO of Melanoma Canada. Now, just before the news, why not? Why not get them going? Dougie Moore's line four, Ode to Newfoundland. As long as you don't sing it, I'll let you on. Are you there? Hey, Tim. How you doing, man? I'm good. I had Chris Facey on yesterday, Doug, as you probably know. Uh, there's a protest today, I gather, uh, related to the ode not being in convocation ceremonies yet happening. I know you have been um, a, a strong voice in arguing that it ought to be returned and express, expressing your displeasure with the past administration around all of this. What's your take on where things stand today? Well, you know, Tim, it's quite interesting. I was down this morning to the uh, sing song for the Ode. We sang the Ode uh, three or four times this morning with great gusto. Nice crowd of people there, and uh, people are very enthusiastic about the Ode to Newfoundland, as, as are many Newfoundlanders. But just quickly reflect on this whole situation. I spoke to you uh, about, I think it might have been last September or October, when this first came out yeah. and, uh, and news that Mamon was going to scrap the Ode. And 
you did a straw poll at that time, B.O. did a straw poll, although not totally scientific, but expressed uh, 90% of the people who, uh, who put out voted on that straw poll said they disagreed with the decision. And I, I, you know, I thought that might have been enough to make, get the powers to be to make some, get some sense out of this and comforter senses and deal with it. But then we go right on now up to where we are today. Uh, Dr. Brian Timmons, sadly, of course, lost her job, I think, mainly because she overplayed this old Newfoundland. That's where her downfall began with the old, and then a few other things happened on her journey, which caused her to ultimately be fired, which was, uh, you know, the price she paid for this. And now we have a new president in here, Dr. Bose, who's going to carry on for another God knows how long with this whole thing. And Theo did another poll a little while ago, and it was announced they were going to continue to not pay the old. And a withering 3% then said that they agreed with the decision, 3 out of 100. So, obviously, Tim, there's a couple of points I'd like to make. Look, I, I'm, a, you know, a lot of, a lot of Newfoundlanders express their, uh, you know, their goodwill for the old Newfoundlanders are national. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, there's a few things maybe they can do with tinkering with it and adding some words and whatever. Nobody wants to feel any student left out. But let's not, for God's sake, forget where we came from. And I really do believe that Memorial University where I graduated from and played hockey with, and I was alumnus of the year at one point, for God's sake. I've been oh, my God, the standards must have been low then, were they? I know they were, yeah, but you haven't been <laughs> really still low, obviously. You're, I, haven't, look, I haven't seen you up in late shit. <laughs> I don't think there's any worry of that, Doug. Anyway, go ahead. I know, but I don't want, I don't want to belabor this point. I, may, I think a lot of people have made their point, but I think Memorial, the sad legacy of all this is that Memorial has lost a tremendous amount of goodwill among you know people who would contribute and want to contribute and donate to the university. Many, many people have expressed to me that they've, they've, they, they've stopped giving the memorial. They've changed their wills. They've done all kinds of things. And is that really in the, in the long-term interest of the university, our only university, when people who can afford to pay and want to pay and would love to be part of it are feel shunned because the administration have decided in their lack of wisdom to play this hand and continue to play it? I mean, what in the hell is wrong with these guys? So I just want the opportunity to... Uh, Get on. Thanks again. What do you think of it all? Yeah, look, um, I, I agree with you. I think everybody could welcome a word change. I, so I, in fact, I had a conversation with somebody who remained nameless last night about this very subject, and the point that person made was, you know what, it, the, this is the one thing that's preventing or still delaying the turning of the page from what's happened over the last number of years. And like you, I played rugby for Memorial, and I remember when we played British Columbia as Newfoundland against British Columbia in the final at the Canada Games Park 30 years ago, and we sang the ode to Newfoundland, and boy, did that motivate us. And like you, I, I would not want um, an anthem that, uh, that that is seen as offensive and one that can be corrected, but I think we have to find a way to put it back. I I, I agree with that. Yes, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the opportunity to get on. And I, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. And it's a lack of leadership. Uh, uh, but anyway, that's it. I've had my say. People have expressed okay. their opinion. And if one wants to continue to play it like this, well, God, uh, they will need help for sure. So God guard thee, Newfoundland, for sure. And thanks again for the opportunity. And you do a great job, Tim. Keep up your good work, buddy. Uh, all right. Good to talk to you. That's Doug Morris, who's been uh, very outspoken in calling for the return of the ode to Newfoundland at the university. And, of course, as Doug pointed out, there are a number of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who share that view and want it done in a responsible, respectful way to address concerns people may have.
have. All right, time for the news here on VOCM, and then back with more of your calls. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Okay, it won't shock you to know that we're... When I'm guest hosting open line, apart from my, you know, nasally nose and voice, which I heard about yesterday, you know, you know, that came from rugby, broken nose. I like to talk rugby on this show. And this, this station has been really good uh, with rugby over the years and all sports for that matter. So when I heard that Cornerbrook was having a rugby day and it's next Saturday, June 10th, uh, the sport coming back there, it's been about 30 years since it was played somewhat regularly out there. I wanted to get somebody on to talk about about it now i've got richard now i'm going to screw the name up i have met you before they used to call you richie t richard tings cool richard how do i say your last name and i apologize for screwing that up no problem um you start with ting yeah and then scow ting scow ting scow ting scow look i'm learning so much today i know they got snakes in cornerbrook and now i can say your name properly ting scow so <laughs> my my lack of grammatical excellence aside tell us all about rugby day in cornerbrook and how it came about well like you said saturday june 10th we're hosting rugby day in cornerbrook at the cornerbrook regional high school field uh, we're looking forward to a fun-filled day packed with uh, different sessions for different age groups. So we're going to start off at 9.30 in the morning with ages 5 to 14. And then that will be at 9.30 to 11.30. Uh, then after, we're having another session for uh, anybody 15 plus. And so that will run from 12 to 2. After that, we have a women's exhibition game. We're going to have a sevens game for the women. And then at 3.30, we're going to have our men's 15 uh, rugby union kickoff where the West Coast Wanderers Selects will be hosting the Swallers Rugby Club for, like you said, one of the first games uh, in Cornerbrook in about 30 years. So during the day, we're going to have uh, prizes, giveaway. The sessions are geared toward just teaching the basic skills of the game of rugby. Everything will be non-contact, free to register. And, yeah, like I said, we're excited. We're looking forward to it. And how did it come about? I mean, I remember 30-odd years ago, it was I think we it was uh, there had been rugby there. There had been some in the Newfoundland and Labrador Provincial Games when it was the 15s aside. They'd sent a team. Uh, how did it get restarted? Like, how did it, how did it turn into this event you're having this weekend or next weekend? Well, uh, back in 17, a few transplants living in – Cornerbrook at the time, uh, namely Sarah Burroughs, Zach Burroughs, uh, Steve Best, the local, yep. and I believe Steve Bennett at the time. Um, they got together and started a, a co-ed touch rugby group called Cornerbrook Touch Rugby. So that initiative of 2017 is where this all started. And then by 2019, we had drummed up enough interest to put in a sevens team in the George Street Sevens tournament. And that was the, I guess, the inauguration of our rugby club, the West Coast Wanderers. So leading up to that point, we had participated in the sevens. We run our touch rugby. Um, We had a wonderful cohort of people coming out, but then the pandemic showed up in like many rec sports. You saw a little Mm -hmm. bit of a rebuilding happen to happen, but um, part of that rebuild now is rugby day in Cornerbrook. So someone quite close to me actually tipped off um, this grant application. So back in January. Uh, Yeah, because you got money from participation, right? 5K or something? That's right. Funded by the government of Canada, and we're very grateful for it. 
And you are a Swiler, if I recall, initially, aren't you? And then have transitioned to Wanderer. How's how's that going? How's that game? Who are you playing for in the game? Uh, I'm going to be playing for the Wanderers. Okay. All right. Uh, You don't have to pitch me on it, uh, Richie, but tell me, you know, tell the audience why rugby and why people should come out and uh, give the pitch for the sport that you would want to give. Okay. Well, first off, it's a pile of fun. I know you know that, but you got to come out and try it. Um, on the rugby pitch, all shapes and sizes. There's space for everyone. You don't you don't need to be a particular type of athlete or anything to come out and have a spot and find success in rugby. Um, the game is just really about skills and fostering those different kinds of skills. There's a great community and it's super accessible. All you really need is a ball and wide open space and you can play. Um, it's a global sport too with a ton of opportunity. Uh, something we really want to communicate to the kids out there is that there's going to be a lot of opportunity for you to play rugby, especially at the collegiate level. So if you want to get into it now, I think the time has never been better. Uh, this year is the Rugby World Cup, of course, in Paris, where France, which is the third largest uh, of spectator sport in the world. Next year is the also the Olympics in France, and there's seven-a-side rugby and all of that. I couldn't have said it better myself. I appreciate you joining us today. Good luck, man, with that uh, on Saturday the 10th, Rugby Day in Cornerbrook. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Okay, take care. Now we're going to move to uh, Fish, a man who knows a lot about fish from all aspects of it uh, and a former member of Parliament, uh, Ryan Cleary. Ryan, how are you? Not bad, Tim. Uh, good morning to you and your listeners. Thanks for taking the call, sir. No problem. Are we, what, what is on your mind today? Shrimp, crab, um, the strife and struggles of uh, many of the people you represent. Tell us uh, what, what's your focus today. Snow crabs specifically, Tim. Um, as you know, the tie-up's been over now since May the 19th. That's 11 days. As you also know, as you also know that the FAW has agreed to 220 a pound. Mm-hmm. That, the, that the processors are laid on the table six or seven weeks beforehand. So, from my perspective, the tie-up could go down as the biggest loss for a labor union in decades, with zero ground gain for workers for, for fishermen. But I'm not calling in to go off on that, Tim. Okay. The reason I'm calling is because tensions are still rising in the fishery, and those tensions may boil over. So I'm calling with a warning. The, the tie-up may be over, but too many enterprise owners are still tied on. And the reason why, Tim, is because Quincy slash Royal Greenland, that's mm-hmm. one of the biggest processing yep. companies in the province, Quincy Royal Greenland, Quincy Royal Greenland is not buying crab from the under-40 fleet. VOCM covered that story last week when, when CNO raised it. Royal Greenland is buying from the bigger over-40 boats. It's load and go for them, but for the smaller fleet, for the smaller boats, for the under-40-foot fleet, they've been told, told that Royal Greenland won't be buying from them until at least uh, until as late as June the 11th. So my first point is, Tim, that that is unacceptable. And the province must step step in. The Fury government allowed Royal Greenland, wholly owned by the government of Greenland, by a foreign country, to buy into our processing sector. And now Royal Greenland is squeezing the life from the small boat fleet by not buying from them, like I say, until at least, from what we're hearing, June the 11th. So, so Ryan, more- j- just, uh, just, just a question on that, because that's, that's fascinating. Why, wh- what is the magic about June 11th and waiting until then? Again, for those of us who are, aren't as versed as you are in the fishery, just holding out till then, what's at play? 
I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Owner operators tell me that they hear the date. Uh, the smaller owner operators tell me they hear the date of June the 11th. I don't know why Royal, Royal Greenland is brought in that date. Okay. Uh, they need to ask that question. Maybe your newsroom can actually direct that to Royal Greenland because okay. you know they need to provide an answer. Okay. Sorry, you had a second point. Go ahead. So the bottom line is with uh, not buying from the small boat fleet, you're going to see more demonstrations. You're going to see some protest. Quincy, Royal Greenland should not have this level of control over our small boat fleet. So like I say, Tim, consider this a warning to the powers that be that tensions are on the rise. That, that point must not be missed from this call. The second issue, um, I've got uh, just one other issue, Tim, um, yep, and this ahead. issue has to, is a concern to the entire inshore fleet in terms of the future health of the snow crab resource. I don't want to get too far in the weeds, uh, too complicated with this, but I'll try to explain it to you as simply as possible what's happening. And you got, got about two and a half, three minutes I can give you, so go for it. Okay. So the crab price, as you know, is two twenty a pound. Mm-hmm. But the crab price is $1.90 a pound for smaller legal-sized crab that's under 4-inch carapace. That, the body of the crab under 4-inch, um, that's $1.90 a pound. So for more than 20 years, there's been a 20% tolerance for smaller crab. So when a boat so a boat will be paid the high price as long as it met the 20% tolerance. Uh, and that, again, that was meant to prevent high grading, only taking larger crab. What's new here is the processing companies have lifted the 20% tolerance. It's now zero. And any smaller crab brought in will mean less money to the fishermen, $1.90 a pound versus two twenty. Again, that 20% tolerance rule was brought in to prevent high grading only bringing in larger crab and lowering the tolerance level, which is what's been done. DFO has documented this in their management plan, that the importance of, uh, of, of a 20% tolerance, but lowering it to zero will lead to high grading and will hurt the resource. This is the kind of thing that processing companies are doing to punish the inshore fleet. Now, is, is that because of the, the six to seven week uh, tie-on? I'm not sure, but not only is it punish, punishing the inshore fleet, Tim, it, it, it's, it's going to hurt the resource by lifting this tolerance level. So, so to sum up, when it comes mm-hmm. to not buying crab from the inshore fleet or eliminating that 20% tolerance for smaller legalized cra- legal-sized crab, processing companies, they're poking the bear that is the inshore fleet. Fishermen are already frustrated. Ten- tensions are already high. And they could boil over. So, so Royal Greenland, this is the final message, Tim, is sure. asking for trouble and not buying from the inshore fleet. And if the province doesn't take action, fishermen may. So, so Tim, please consider the warning has been issued to the powers okay. that be. And uh, as you uh, rightly encourage, our news team will dig into this. And just one final point again for the for the listeners who, again, like me, don't have a ton of the same experience that you do. Well, I'm assuming, again, when you sell a, um, a, a smaller crab, an undersized crab, obviously that crab doesn't have the ability to grow and become more valuable the next season. And as a consequence, your ecosystem gets significantly downgraded and your resource diminishes. Am I right there? You're absolutely right, but it's not an undersized crab. It's just uh, it's, it's a smaller small, crab. It's still legal smaller size. crab, sorry. Smaller. Still legal, but smaller, but it's more valuable as it is bigger. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate that, and we'll have our news team dig into it. Good to talk to you. Thank you for your time, Tim. All right, that's Ryan Cleary, uh, uh, who is always on top of these issues and issuing a warning. Again, Minister of Fisheries, Mr. Bragg, if he wants to call. Um, I don't know if we get him in today, but if he wants to, we will try. But we'll go to news here. Or not news, it's a break. Time for a break here on VOCM. Back with you after that. VOCM's Open Line. 
Call now. 273-5211 or 1-888-590-VOCM. Welcome back. We got about 37 minutes of the program left. So if you want to call Ring Sarah, we've got a, a bunch of people there, but we'll make space for you if we can. And I'm going to make space now and welcome uh, Catherine, to line, uh, who's on line three, to talk about wind power. Catherine, good morning. How are you? Good morning to you, and thank you for taking my call. Um, not that I am any expert on wind energy, but I uh, I heard part of your introduction this morning, mm-hmm. and uh, I think you did mention the green, green energy from. Um, and one of the one of the things is the the wind uh, the wind uh, uh, turbines. Yes. Um, I I just want to add to that conversation, which it seems to be emerging, is the health effects that people are experiencing around those uh, wind turbines. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the documentary Downwind by journalist Rebecca Thompson in uh, Ontario. I have not seen it. I, I, what, what I would say, Catherine, I have, I've heard, not read them in great detail yet, some reports that um, re- reflect concerns as you were echoing about being co-located near wind turbines. But please go ahead. Yes, it's uh, well. The documentary is wind wind farm documentary, um, and uh, it, it, it's um, it it been it it seems that it's being studied. And now, and uh, in re- in relation to that documentary, Dr. Robert McMurtry in Ontario, mm-hmm. uh, they've now classified all the symptoms as wind turbine syndrome. Uh, and it's pretty severe effects from it, and I'm and all I'm saying is that where this is emerging, uh, I think it's very important for the public to be aware that this is also a possibility from this, and uh, there's also in that documentary. Uh, uh, energy analysts that's uh, questioning the benefits of all of this. So I, I, I'm, I'm just throwing that out. N- not mm-hmm. that I know a lot, but uh, I'm trying to read uh, things coming out from it. And uh, it, it, and it's good for you for doing good. that. I, I, sorry to interrupt you. I would just say this. I, and again, um, I have not seen the documentary. I don't know. But I think your, your overall message is Look, it, it is our responsibility as citizens uh, to understand all of the facts as best we can est- uh, establish them about projects. I know that it will be required that uh, there be different governmental reviews, environmental and social impacts of projects like that. And it's important, uh, as you are alluding to, to get yourself informed. And if you can, uh, be part of the consultations in, in these exercises instead of just falling on one side or the other saying, no or yes, it's important to do the work you're doing, Catherine. Now, uh, there there is a newly formed environmental group mm-hmm. uh, in in Newfoundland because you know there's a big push to get those turbines on the west coast. Yes, and the people are are not happy, or not all of them are happy about it. And uh, they're 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 I, I think one of their main things at the moment is to ask government to just slow down. And, uh, you know, 
not put something there that's going to, in the long term, um, be a cause of, of uh, a lot of grief for people. Yeah, and the other side, and again, I am sure government will do all that they can to make sure that the, I mean, that is their primary responsibility of people's health, safety, and well-being. And there will be an argument made by proponents, which is also fair, that, you know, economic certainty, having a job and a future that's safe and secure is another important social determinant of health. But we got to have all these discussions. And good for that environmental group to, to raise issues of concern. Hopefully we can do it, as I say, without just slogans and you know, good or bad and, and get into it because uh, it's important to the long-term future, not just of the Stephenville port of port area, but the whole province. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, bye. Have a nice day. All right. I pro- uh, thank you. I promise I didn't set up the next call, but I, I, it's a shock. Somebody's going to say apparently something nice about me. Is that true, Sam Reed? Is that true? Are you, you're not related to me. I just want to make that clear. How are you today? Of course we have. My goodness, my goodness. So, so you got to laugh at this. So Sarah, who's doing a great job today, had said to me and texted me that we have a caller named Sam. And God bless him if he's, uh, if he's real. And I have no doubt he is because he talked to Sarah, who had nice things to say about me. Of course, of course the call dropped. Oh, well, I'll get, I'll get past. I'll get past all of that. Um, just one thing uh, before we go to news here at, uh, at uh, 11.30. We would love to have, not because I want to elongate the debate, but I'd I'd love to have anybody like Doug Moores who uh, was at the protest uh, today or anybody who has a contrary view. You're welcome here on Open Line to talk about uh, the ode. If you're up there and you have a perspective, give us a call. If you uh, have a perspective that helps people understand what um, you may find offensive or challenging or unsafe about the ode to Newfoundland, I'd legit legitimately welcome that perspective. It's important so that we can get to getting at what um, what can happen with the ode in the future. As I say, it's something that's near and dear to so many of us and certainly is something that has uh, been sung with great pride and um, determination by generations of, of Newfoundlanders. But I know this about this for, for Newf- Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, that we are people who are open-minded and, and prepared to listen. And we certainly will do that here on VOCM's Open Line. All right, we are going to head to news when we come back. 30 minutes of your calls. I'm Tim Powers, back with you shortly. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. We're in the home stretch here now, and we've got some calls. We've got Tracy on, uh, on the line who wants to talk about Andrew Bedwell's failed trip across the Atlantic. And thank you to Tracy. I know she called earlier. It got crazy, but we've got her back again. So thank you, Tracy, for waiting. What are your thoughts on that trip? Oh, my gosh, Tim, like, what do you say? Like, I was watching the news last night, and, you know, I, I like, what a waste of resources. And I guess that's where I'm to. If somebody wants to go out and try to make it across the Atlantic in a three-meter-foot boat, knock yourself out. 
But when you expect the Coast Guard to come out and get you, what a waste of resources. And then hop in your boat and try it again. And then your water takes on boat. And then, then you're, like, crying on the news about it. Somebody from Coast Guard should send him a bill and say, <laughs> we wasted our resources on you. He's not even Canadian. So, like, I don't know what to say about this. Like, I'm at a, I'm at a complete loss how this even happened. And somebody should honestly send somebody like him a bill and send a message out for people who want to do these idiotic things that, yeah, you can do it, but if it fails, here's a bill because you're putting not only is it a waste of resources, but for the staff who have to go out and rescue you in God knows what conditions, placing their own lives at risk, and, and I'm offended by it. Yeah, it, it's an interesting take, and I think you got some valid points there. Look, I uh, I, I don't solo across the Atlantic in boats. I don't know why anybody would want to, but I've done not really hardcore adventure racing. But look, I ran across the uh, Machu Picchu. It was all managed and, and the like, and I went with a fellow Newfoundlander, and uh, we, we you know we paid insurance and had all of that. But you know, crossing the Atlantic's a whole other kettle of fish. And for years, part of the pun, you could become a kettle for the fish, or you could end up in the yeah. belly of the fish, I guess. But I mean, as you know, we've had this happening for years, so you would think, and I think you're right, Tracy, that when it comes to the Coast Guard, who are doing their duty, and they're not going to discriminate against where somebody's from or, or who they are, but maybe, maybe we we do start to charge a fee because arguably uh, saving Mr. Bedwell or rescuing him could in different circumstances take away from other work that they're doing what God forbid would have happened if there was a fishing vessel or another vessel in distress at the same time I mean I'm all for people pushing the limits I'm all for them trying to do the best that they can but equally as they take on a lot of that responsibility they have to look at how they pay for it what what are what do your friends say about this when you, you you talk to them about it well, I don't like. I don't know. I seen it on the news last night and things like that, right? And I mean, I guess for me, for for Newfoundlanders, we've argued for so long and lobbied and advocated for uh, better yeah. Coast Guard services and things like that, and to have it wasted on on you know somebody who chooses to do this and who's idiotic enough to get in his boat and try it again, you know. And and I guess for me, I'm a parent of uh, first responders, so. Oh, are you okay? Right, so. I guess from from my perspective is, you know, why why would anybody put themselves? And I know it's part of the job, but it's so unnecessary. It's a waste yeah. of resources. And if you come and you choose to do this, that's fine. But there has to be some guidelines or something in place, or this guy should be given a bill. But at what point in time, you know, he had a fail attempt and then tried it again, like our. Like, where's the harbor authority in this that they're letting people launch themselves off into the Atlantic Ocean who aren't safe? I mean, I, I don't know. It's so bizarre and unnecessary, and I'm, I don't know. I know I'm rambling, but to me, it's no, no, you, resources. Well, uh, look, um, I, I think in the case of the harbor authority, they, they just charge for what would be peerage. They're not, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Bedwell's ultimately responsible for Mr. Bedwell, and if somebody wants to do something that is dangerous, that's ultimately their own personal choice and I don't think we should get involved in that however when they when that personal choice does mean that public resources are being spent to solve or help them then for sure we should have a discussion about that the only thing I I, I would say though
I guess we do need not, not that this is the example of that, but remember, was was it Alcock and Brown who flew across from Newfoundland a, across? I mean, we do need people who take risks, who who do adventures, who do all of these things because it it can spawn innovation uh, and creativity, and it's been a important part of 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 the human dimension for centuries, taking risks and and taking uh, taking uh, taking a challenge others won't do. But yeah, m- maybe he should pay for it. I I, I think you'd have a large body of support, Tracy, who would uh, be okay with uh, writing uh, or sending an invoice to Mr. Bedwell for his misadventure adventure. You know, we're watching, you know, forest fires everywhere, and, yeah. and you know, firefighters are putting themselves on the line. And, and if something happens accidentally, fine, but if someone goes out and starts a fire that could take property away, and I know I'm going on a different tangent, but for me, it's the safety of the people who respond to these things. And to me, it should be, uh, it's this wasn't an accident because he had planned it. If you're out fishing and you're trying to make your living and, and something happens and something they got to go rescue you, fine, or you're on a pleasure boat that could be out in the water safely and something happens, yeah. fine. But to try to cross the Atlantic in a three-foot meter or a three-meter boat and then be stupid enough to, to get in it again and try it again and have it plucked out of the water again, and there should be some repercussion for that. He should be handed a bill and say, here, buddy, we, this is what it costs to, you know, rescue your ass twice. And that's well, and, and, you know, your point about the first responders right now, because uh, when I was talking to Dan Barton in Halifax earlier about all the great work the first responders are doing there, I mean, it, it, it's already been raised and we're just coming out. You know, we still have a couple of days left in May about the, the first the, the burnout rates that we have to be conscious of for our first responders, at least in the fire service. And it will be no yeah. no different uh, in, uh, in in the Marine service because uh, the summer's a busy season for these people uh yeah. that you know you you, you do you, they take a risk is this a necessary risk they they spend time doing this uh, that all that all adds up fair points tracy appreciate you calling back and uh that was a great call thank you for your all thoughts right. Have a good one. thanks bye you too bye yeah I'm, I'm with tracy i'm looking that up you know it was alcock and brown 1919 flew a first world war vickers vimy bomber from st john's to galway so we've always had adventures and uh, as the point I was making, they've they've had uh, they uh, they've had um, they, they've had the instigation ability for many important inventions that have come afterwards. Anyway, we're trying to track down uh, Bedwell. We'll see if Mr. Bedwell wants to come on and see what he thinks about it all. But right now, I've got Suzanne Pittman on. Suzanne, you want to talk about an eviction that uh, that's uh, of of uh, a topic to you? Yes, sir. My name is Suzanne Pittman. I'm calling from Hampton, Newfoundland. Okay. And I'm 61 years old, and I was living in a house from a man in the United States. But he sold it because we had a stroke, and now I got to be at the house, and I can't get nowhere to go. I've been tried everybody, MHA, NTV, Western Out. So I'm basically, you know... So, <laughs> usually in circumstances like this, was have you been given? What were the terms in terms of time of transition for you between getting the eviction notice and saying you had to be out? And were they were they in line with what's legally required? No, my uh, the one that bothers me, cousin. Hey, he's working, but his brother's living here right now, and he wants to get 
some work done to those. So he got me put. He told me I had to get out a certain time, but then they come back with a letter saying that I had to July the 17th. So I've been called every place I know of to get into the home. And, like, the Western Alp been tried, Sops Arm, I can't get in there. And they've been tried Deer Lake, I can't get into yeah. the homes. Or, and the other home that they was trying to get me in, it was $3,100 a month, which I don't have. So... It, was it so? Was it? Were you legally evicted though? And, and again, I just want to focus on on that point for a second. So, did he give you enough no? <clears throat> excuse me. Did he give you enough notice? I appreciate you're trying to find a space, but I'm just trying to understand if all that front end stuff was done properly. Well, I was in Deer Lake at the time for a couple of weeks with a friend in there, and my sister called and told me that uh, that uh, the house was stolen, and that's all she told me. But I didn't know who had those spot or anything. So when I got home, I, I packed up everything. My sister and I was and a friend, and we packed up everything, got all ready, you know, to go. And then uh, then Tommy said, well, he'll give me till July the 17th because he wants to come home and do some work on it. But okay. he's working away from Hampton, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, your best bet, I didn't hear you say it, and maybe you did, um, maybe you try your MHA. You might be the – so if you're Deer Lake area, the premier would be an M, is a certain Yeah, I tried there, my love. And so I get to just answer machines all the time. I even call right direct to St. John's, NTV, uh, everybody, like I told you, everything, Labrador Ocean, everybody I could think of, but – they have got to take in if they don't want to. No. They said if there's anything of valuable, but I've been calling all the week and still not available, right? So. Yeah, that's that's tough. Well, um, people have heard you today. Maybe somebody who's heard you um, will be able to, to give you some, some assistance. Keep us updated on it, all right? And, and good luck. I know it's, uh, it's, it's not easy. When you're at my age and I got medical problems too, and bad legs and all kinds of medical problems, right? Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, if I was, and I'm living alone, my sister lives next door, but. She can't do nothing much about it, so okay. and nobody won't take me in until I find a place. So I was willing to pay, you know, some board, but there's nobody willing to take me in, and you know, and then there's me groceries and. Yeah, and groceries aren't cheap. No, that's cheap now at the moment. It's it's tough out there. Yeah, it's, it's tough out there. It's kind of for me now. It's hard for me to get any, right? Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. All right, I know. well. <laughs> That's everywhere uh, now, my love. I, I know. Well, I, I wish you best, the best and keep us updated, all right? And, again, you know, we're pretty good. <clears throat> VOCM is pretty good at helping people. And if uh, if somebody calls Sarah or leaves a message with, with Dave or, or here, we'll, we'll track you down, okay? Yeah, well, if anybody wants to track me down, the number is 1-709-455-4555. Four five zero one one, Janet Rogers. That's my sister. Okay, perfect. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Nice speaking with you. You too. Have a great day. All right. Take care. 
Um, if you can help that lady, please give us a call. I know uh, she certainly would appreciate it based on what we just heard. All right, our last break here on Open Line. We've got room for probably one more call, maybe two. Give us a ring. Uh, I also have a statement that I was just given from Seamus O'Regan's office in response to uh, Chris Aylward's call. I'll read that when we come back after uh, the break. Welcome back to, to Open Line. Last nine minutes, we've got some time if somebody wants to call. But before we do that... You'll remember earlier on in the program, we had Chris Aylward, who is the president of PSAC, the Public Service Alliance of Canada. He was calling to discuss what was happening with the Iqaluit Housing Authority. And you remember that the uh, workers in the Iqaluit Housing Authority had been off the job for 70 plus days and that replacement workers had been brought in. This had caught the ire of uh, Chris Aylward because um, he was of the view that that shouldn't happen and often that is the view that union leaders take of course that's what they're supposed to uh, fight for Uh, he was also angry because the federal government has promised to bring in uh, anti-replacement worker legislation that would restrict the use of all of this so we reached out uh, he was also very critical uh, to of Minister O'Regan, accusing him of not focusing on this issue, spending too much time tweeting, being in Mexico, though he did eventually acknowledge that as a minister he does have to travel. But you get it all very personal. Of course, uh, trying to speak to the minister in his constituency of Newfoundland and Labrador. So we re- reached out to Minister O'Regan. And he uh, has sent a statement along, and it reads as follows. I don't take orders from Chris Allward. I take the advice of federal mediators. Most recently, they just got a deal done on WestJet and prevented a strike on the May long weekend. They are the best in the business. In the case of a Callowit housing, parties aren't even at the table. Mediators are sitting there waiting for them. We encourage parties to sit down and work this out. So just again, I don't take orders from Chris Aylward. I take the advice of federal mediators. Most recently, they got a deal done on WestJet and prevented a strike on the May long weekend. They are the best in the business. In the case of a Callowit housing, parties aren't even at the table. Mediators are sitting there waiting for them. We encourage the parties to sit down and work this out. Power of VOCM. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Um, he he has uh, the minister has responded, and we have just given you his response. Our newsroom will uh, continue to follow this story for you. And if you want to comment on that or anything else, give us a ring. Anybody out there do want to talk about the ode? Again, I'm not trying to stir up the hornet's nest here. I'm just trying to gauge it. Sarah and I were talking about this a few moments ago. We've gotten two calls over the last two days on it. Uh, Patty may indeed get more in the week, uh, week, the rest of this week when he's back, because of course uh, the protest only happened today. Is the temperature changing among the public or not. I don't think it is, but certainly the volume of uh, criticism about the the pullback of the oath or suspension of the oath, pick your terms, from the convocation ceremonies has uh, has, uh, has 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 lessened other than Chris and uh, and Doug, but I've heard others. But um, what's your what's your thought on all of that? Is it something that uh, you want to see 
brought back in. And if you have a different view, give us give us that. By the way, I have to share this with you, too, as we're in the final moments. And none of you want to talk to me, and that's okay. I saw this great message a few moments ago from former federal cabinet minister and longtime Inu leader Peter Panashue congratulating a student who graduated today by the name of Tamara Hill and making the point, and I think this is an important one because I know Peter, I know the Inu community. I've been very lucky to have lots of dealings with them over the years, but Peter made the point that um, Tamara Hill and others are, are rare, meaning that there are not as many university graduates that come from the Inu community as you would like to see coming from the Inu community. And what an achievement for Tamara Hill and all of her friends and family to see that play out today. And I hope her journey, if she wants it to continue from an educational perspective, continues and that she gets the chance to fulfill all her dreams. I heard a fascinating bit yesterday when I was driving around in Ottawa about the debate around education and university education versus a trades education. And I have to tell you, it really sunk in with me that um, while a university education is still very important, people were saying we need to change the cultural dynamics of education, meaning that oft it was seen and oft described to us that, you know, if you got a university education, you, uh, you, your, your ticket was written. But now it's not just a university education. In fact, it's a trades education. And any of us who have sought trades people uh, to do work, uh, to be part of projects we're part of, will know it's tough to get them. And my goodness, uh, the ones that we have are highly skilled. There are shortages there. So as I look at Tamara Hill's journey and I look at students stepping out of the university today, and others coming out of colleges. The world truly is your oyster. And I encourage the diversity of education and to change the way we look at culture to, to value uh, on the same level as a traditional university education, an advanced or regular trades education. All of those things are important. And to all those students that are graduating, owed or no owed aside, it's a phenomenal moment uh, when you walk across that stage at the Arts and Culture Center. I did it more than a few years ago. Um, my educational journey was not the easiest, and that was largely because of me. I didn't necessarily engage in the university, in the academic life as much as I did in the, the sport and the social life, but eventually I settled down and did all of that. But I tell you, it was quite the thrill to walk across the stage at Memorial, at the Arts and Culture Center, to hear your name called and get that degree called, uh, you receive that degree and carry it across the stage. I, I, and to all those students that are doing that today and did it yesterday and continue to do it to all the honorary degree recipients to all their families cherish that moment it's still not um, a rubber stamping exercise you spend a lot of time a lot of effort a lot of money to do it enjoy those moments relish them and recognize not to make this a commencement address but hey what the hell that you have the world before you and we need you to engage nothing inspires me more these days to see the young people taking leadership positions young people changing uh, forcing change and encouraging change in the way we think the way we look at institutions and and wanting to make 
dynamic new improvements on how we speak and how we value things, while at the same time looking to protect traditions like the Ode to Newfoundland and, and striking balance. Anyway, enjoy your day. Enjoy the graduation ceremonies. Enjoy all of that. I have enjoyed my two days here for now. Thank you to Dave Williams yesterday, who was excellent, and Sarah Strickland, who was also excellent today. A few little challenges, but she handled them all like a pro, and we got through it. We had great conversations with all number of peoples. Uh, always enjoy doing that. Patty will be back tomorrow. Dave will be back tomorrow. You make sure you call in. Make sure you always give time to VOCM's open line. It's one of the most unique platforms in the country where you truly can have your say in real time and everybody does listen. For now, I'm Tim Powers. That's VOCM's open line. Thanks very much.